Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Not all athletes are created equal, particularly when it comes to the sport of fitness. This week, we dive into a conversation about CrossFit with the renowned games coach, Ben Bergeron. His experience working with competitors at the highest level provides an insight into programming and prepping these select few for one miserable weekend in August. He also acknowledges the differences both in mindset and training goals between these go-hards and your average weekend warrior. The biggest distinction, risk versus reward. A reoccurring theme in this episode is the role of strength in developing an athlete's all-around capacity. The crew and Ben trade theories on what it means to be, quote, strong enough, and poor text talks about a nightmare he had in which all teenagers quit high school to focus on getting better thrusters. It's okay, Tex. You just had a bad dream. This is episode 225. Nation, what is up? This is another episode of the Premier Podcast. In strength and conditioning. In strength and conditioning. Ing. I think the whisper is going to catch. Now that's nah, one. It sounds creepy. Now, exactly. Uh, we uh, we got a lot of stuff going on today. Pretty exciting show. But the first and foremost, some public service announcements. The most important being Pediatric Cancer Awareness Month. Yes, right, so we are in September, so we've kicked off Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and essentially their theme throughout every single year is Go Gold. So if you ever see any gold armbands during the MLB, MLB is huge with pediatric cancer. It's because Go Gold, the gold ribbon, uh, that is Childhood Cancer Awareness. So we've brought back gold to our characters, our brand new shirt. It is, it's all gold. And that's for Wade's Army people. Yes. Wade's Army is our 501c3 legitimate charity that uh, John, I was there when it started. Uh, and it started as a t-shirt drive. And well, now it, it actually started at the shaming of my wife saying, hey, you think you can do something to raise some money to help some kids? At which point I thought, yeah, let's do some stuff. And then I, ha- I got Luke and we hacked together some shirts, which I designed and uh, mm-hmm. packaged them ourselves. And that's how Wade's Army started was this idea little that t-shirt drive. we're going to do a little t-shirt drive. We're going to raise some money and see if we can uh, you know, be a fundraising arm for uh, Wade's Wings, which was uh, the charity put together for Wade DeBruin after he passed away at 18 months of neuroblastoma, which eventually grew into Wade's Army because we realized that to really make a change, we were going to need an army of people. And uh, from that point, it's really grown into what it is today, which is, uh, I mean, I like to think it's a force to be reckoned with, but uh, mm-hmm. that's probably just in my life so and in our lives. But it's, uh, no, it's, it's really been something we've been a battle call for us all year, and then it culminates with what we call Wade's Day, which is uh, November 12th, 12th uh, and that we do a workout that I created in memory of him, and that's kind of the culmination deal. So uh, up until that point, we try to raise as much money as we can, get as many t-shirts as we can to give to as many people so we can get some good good pictures. And this year we're paying particular attention to exactly where the money is going. And we're giving you as a donor an option. So you can choose to fund a pediatric cancer trial. So this is a last, essentially a last ditch effort of treatment for um, chemo didn't work. Other yeah. approaches didn't work. So kids, kids enter, uh, they enter the trial for an opportunity for us to find a cure for the cancer. So we have funded five. So they just uh, kicked off our fifth one that we funded with last year's donations. So we're aiming for number six. Um, so we, we post and show exactly each trial where the money goes on wadesarmy.org. So you can choose that, or you can choose to select a family in need. So the families, uh, they... Well, 
Well, here, let me uh, let me take that off. Uh, like okay. when we originally started, we had this idea that we were gonna you know donate money and uh, you know raise money for Wade's Wings, in which I remember that first year I wrote a check. And all of a sudden, like a few months later, I, I hit the people up and asked them where our money went, and they couldn't tell me exactly where the money went. And I got kind of pissed, being like, well, is my money going for in-house operations? I want to know where my dollars are earmarked, at which point they, they didn't give me any transparency. Uh, and I got a kind of a sad feeling, uh, reminded me of a lot of the charities that um, professional athletes start that just basically employ their family members and uh, raise money for, for themselves, which I thought was fucking terrible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, gets you into the seventh layer of hell. So I wanted a way to create transparency. And so we, by creating Wade's, uh, Wade's Army and then starting to, you know, fundraise and, uh, you know, and everybody was looking for different money for research and whatnot. And actually the one thing that was severely underfunded was to spread some of the burden that these parents and these families, because there was only a few research centers that were actually working with the people. Is so, that still the case? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, eleven. Been. So there's eleven uh, essential research centers, hospitals that are treating neuroblastoma. So Cincinnati, Lubbock, Texas. So say you live in Alaska, hundred miles away, you would have to well, uproot. We uproot. had a family from Alaska have, oh, to, have yeah, to yeah. move to M- Memphis, Tennessee. And they ended up moving the whole family, renting an apartment, and we actually bought them a minivan because they couldn't get the wheelchair for the for the, the child going through treatment uh, in the car to be able to take them and the family over to the treatment center. So they reached out to us and we bought them a minivan, which I thought was epic. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, like... I realize that a lot of charities look at things in terms of this global sense, but I think if uh, yeah, that you was, know, if we can make the difference in one person's life, then I think it's uh, it's valuable. And that's what was frustrating. I posted a little thing from NPR on like the Red Cross and Hurricane Harvey and shit, and like you don't know where the money goes. And I understand. Listen, and there's people who are like, "Hey, I'm part of this shit." I sh- assure you that that I have been empowered by the Red Cross to make a change in in this relief. But still, it's like, man, if I'm going to give like a thousand bucks to something I want to go to like Harvey, I want to make sure it goes there. And that's why I think it's fucking awesome about well, this Well, that's year. what happened in Haiti. What? They raised half a, half right. a bill, like $500, uh, $500 million. And as of like, to, at the time of the article, they'd only spend $127 million on internal operations. Sure. You know, so like, I, but what I, do I know? I, I don't know. I guess what I know. That it's a big corporation and they have expenses and this and they're doing all these things. But I, I, I just think like... It, that how do you you know and th- this even takes it a vein back to like some of like the CTE consu- uh, concussion stuff with the NFL where you know they were kind of going through and they you know create this fund or whatever and I remember getting hit up and I said to him one thing I'm like yo man if uh, if there's one player that's fucked up that has ALS that needs the money to basically for treatment or survival or whatever and we're sitting here like screwing around and not helping him then you know what, let's sign this thing, let's get it on board, let's get these people paid out and at least uh, you know help them through this thing a little bit because there's nothing like sitting there waiting for something to come through that never does. And uh, I think for a lot of these families that reached out and they'll, they'll send us proposals, you know, we, you know, we, we check them out, we, we talk to them and, um, you know, these people are in need. And, um, you know, I think if you can do something and even if it's just help one person, and, yeah, you know, yeah. then it makes value. So, so, and you can check out all the families and keep tabs. That's what we're going to do throughout the year. Keep tabs on them. Uh, we've reached out to the kids we were helping four or five years ago. Um, and we put their stories up. So check that out. Wade'sArmy.org. And, and then uh, Wade's Army on Facebook, Wade's Army yep. on Instagram. Get out there. Do and, it. And the, uh, the sadder thing too. And I always think about like, whenever we talk about this, I mean, we have lost soldiers, uh, you know, and I always talk, think about like the, the kids fighting pediatric cancer and, you know, we lost Wesley this year and, um, that's uh, pretty heartbreaking. So, 
There you have it, folks. And if you are not in a position to maybe you put that cup on this side. Sorry, dude. If you're not hitting no worries. If you're not in a position to donate, I get it. I get it. Help us by just helping spread the message. Share our stuff, like our stuff, that type of stuff. And that's super easy. You know, and if you're not willing to do that, well, you know what? I don't have any kind words for you. Yeah. Fuck so you, I, listen to this free podcast. <laughs> so I guess uh, let's just barrel forward, shall we? Let's do it. Oh, uh, uh, one other thing. Uh, we got Symposium coming up. So oh, obviously yeah. we, we talked about Symposium. Powerathletehq.com slash Symposium. Actually, by the time people hear this, this John, it's, it's going to be, be sold out. It's going to be sold out. Yeah. So we got that. And then also the first block one is coming up. Right. So that's our endeavor into, uh, into officially knighting our coaches as power athlete coaches. You know, whether it's accredited or certified, uh, you get to fly our banner, and that's happening at the ranch, and we're going to be scrambling here the rest of the, I guess, week and next week to get it set up and fucking make an epic experience. But peep, if you, peeps, if you want that uh, or interest in that, you have to head over to academy.powerathletehq.com, and it starts with the methodology course. So check it out. Go over there, visit the course page, and see if it's for you because it's not for everybody. We're not going to pass everybody. It's not a get-a-ribbon type of thing. you got to be a badass motherfucker. Like me. To they, earn that block. <laughs> yeah. But they got to get it. So, yeah. Oh, no. They got to earn those blocks because uh, I have to hand forge, hand make those fucking mm-hmm. blocks. So. so only one person's passing? Uh, <laughs> no. I'm going to make fucking 20 of those things. I get it. I'm going to make, make five extras just so that we have uh, a few extras because I got a feeling I'm going to hack some of that shit together. That will happen. Now, enough about yes. us. Let's get on to our guest. Uh, the man, the myth, the legend. We have Ben Bergeron, who's owner of CrossFit New England, author Chasing excellence, big name in the games, my man. You got some uh, some athletes out there that are challenging what we thought was possible in the terms of uh, the CrossFit Games and fitness and everything, uh, dude. It's an honor to have you on. I'm excited to get into some some discussions about some methodology, some philosophy, mental side of things. So, if people don't know who you are, why don't you give them a brief brief intro? Uh, I think that was a pretty good intro. I'm uh, <laughs> Ben Bergeron. I, uh, I I coach at CrossFit New England. I also coach some games athletes. I recently wrote a book. I am not an author, <laughs> <laughs> um, but had some uh, had some recent success with the games um, with the athletes that I've coached. Um, but started back in the early days of the games, competing myself on a team, and then uh, quickly transitioned away from the athlete side into the coaching side, which I found a lot more enjoyable. Uh, I was a better coach than I was an athlete and it's, it spoke to my competitive nature a little bit better. And, um, in the last few years I've raised a family, have a great wife and excited about today. Awesome, man. Well, I guess first, to, okay. So you have a few games athletes. First off, who are these folks? Let people know if they don't know I, who you're behind, like you got Katrine, right? Yep. I coach, uh, I coach four athletes. I've, I found that that's worked really well for me. I, I limit it to four athletes, two guys and two girls, mm-hmm. that small number. Actually, I feel like it's, I think it's a big number right now, but relatively small compared to a lot of other coaches. I believe, um, I try and keep it small. It allows me, um, two guys so they can bounce back and forth off each other and compare and two girls so they can bounce back and forth each other mm. and compare, but not so many that I lose sight of what they're really trying to do. Um, so I coach Matt Fraser, Catherine David's daughter, Brooke Wells, and Cole Sager. Nice, man. So uh, I guess take us through that. Do you have any other besides uh, uh, coaching those guys in the CrossFit Games? Are you, 
any other coaching experience outside of the fitness side of things where you could compare and contrast, like let's say coaching either basketball lacrosse to some of these, you know, individual competitors who, you know, are working with and against each other in an interesting dynamic of competition in the game, the sport of fitness, right? Yeah. So how, how could you bounce and compare that? So do I have coaching experience outside of CrossFit? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've been coaching, um, not at a high level, not like, you know, where John was or anything like that, but I've been coaching most of my life. I started off coaching when I was in high school, um, and kind of grew up coaching recreational side of things. Um, and then out of college, um, I became a coach, like a personal trainer, mm -hmm. uh, when in my mid twenties and then grew that into becoming a strength and conditioning coach. And from being a strength and conditioning coach, found CrossFit, and the segue was from there. So what team sports? Have you gotten into any of the team sports stuff? No, I, I coached – yeah, I coached uh, individual sports. So I coached um, sailing. I coached uh, skiing. I coached uh, – I coached baseball a little bit. Um, I played rugby in college. Okay. Yeah, where would you go to school? St. Michael's in Vermont. Same. So I'd like to, I know your, your specialty is the, is the mindset. So just reading through your book and then uh, the narrative, the process of, of dialing in and laying down these factors in your, your introduction, you introduced the, uh, what would you call, what did you call the, your pyramid here? The mindset? I don't know if you can see in our camera. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, if, if Greg Glassman's coined like the theoretical development of an, of a um, athlete, I would say this is kind of uh, the theoretical development of a competitor. Okay. I think it's transitional regardless of sports that we're talking about. Um, I think that this is, there's a foundation that needs to be built before we try to get into the, the finer details of what uh, true excellence or competitive looks like regardless of the sport. And so to, to paint the picture for our listeners here, so we have four segments. So the base, the foundation of the pyramid, we have person, characteristics of a champion. We have process building off of that, maximizing minutes. And above that, we have ability, strength, and conditioning practice, and the peak, the peak of the pyramid game plan. Hey, uh, um, let's get you off text. Uh, can we get into the character part of this thing a little bit? I'm yeah, actually interested yeah, into the foundation that. of this. Yeah, absolutely. So um, here's so like if you think of a pyramid, the top of the very top of this thing is strategy or game planning. If we we're talking about football, this would be, you know, are we gonna run, are we gonna play man-to-man -man defense? Are we gonna do zone blitzing? Are we gonna do a ground and pound game? Are we gonna go with a widespread offense and that's what most people like to geek out about in our sport it's okay we have amanda are you going to do singles on the snatches or are you going to go unbroken are you going to take bigger breaks or are you going to try and plod through this thing and people love to talk about the strategy and the game planning of it it's important but i don't think it's the determining factor does it play into how you perform absolutely but i think below that it's fairly obvious if you want to go unbroken on amanda you have to have a certain level of ability and that's where it's the 10 components of fitness. It's your strength, stamina, um, agility, balance, coordination, all that stuff. It's also your VO2 max. In football, if we were talking about that, it would be what's your 40-yard dash and how is your, you know, what's your, what's your hands and your footwork like on and blocking. That's where most people kind of start and end. It's like let's get bigger bench press. Let's get faster 40 times. Let's get better muscle-ups, and then we'll talk about whether we should do grace unbroken or we should be doing it in three sets of 10. My contention is that there's an underlying level that really sets the stage for that, which is the process. And in the book, I call it maximizing minutes. What I mean by that is there is a set number of things that you have control over. 
and the process drives into those set number of things. So in our sport, and I think it's most sports, it's essentially five things. It's your nutrition, it's your training, it's your sleep, it's your recovery, and it's your mindset. So if you focus everything you have in those five controllable factors and forget about everything else, forget about the noise, forget about your competition, forget about all the other uncontrollables, you're maximizing your minutes. But here's the deal with that is if you're going to make sure you're truly putting everything you have in every minute, that's hard. It's really hard. It takes a certain level of character traits to be able to do that. It takes a certain level of discipline and commitment, patience and growth mindset and focus and competitiveness. Those are the character traits that we're trying to drill into the athletes. Some of them are born with or raised, whether it's nurture or nature, I don't know, but some of them come with better of it. And then we try and I try and work really hard to maximize that before all else. So do you, so you really believe that you can actually, uh, like if somebody is of low kind of character, like if they don't have work ethic, you believe that putting into the proper system, you can create that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, in, in football, your example, you know, um, in your world, you know, take someone like Randy Moss, you put Randy Moss in Oakland and what happens? And he walks off the field in the, in the second half. You put him in the Patriot system. You know, I'm from New England. Yeah, but, uh, but, but <laughs> I you saw gotta, that one coming. But you got to yeah. remember, uh, I know Randy, and uh, Randy yeah. is, uh, in terms of ethics and character, is what I would label as a low moral character type of person. But the problem yeah. is you put him in a Bill Belichick system where... Uh, consequence. Consequence, and uh, Bill Belichick ain't fucking around. And yep. Randy knew that the stuff that he could get away in other places, he couldn't get away there. Right, absolutely. So his so the, the character traits he was displaying, his behavior changed because he was put into the right system. Now, whether he is still a person that cheats on tests or doesn't pay his taxes or, you know, swears at kids, I don't know. And truthfully, I don't care. I'm, this is not about table manners. It's not about please and thank yous or making your bed in the morning. This is about creating the right competitive atmosphere for these athletes to thrive in. I, I believe that there's some carryover to moral traits and stuff like that, but that's not really at the heart of this. What's at the heart of it is having a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And my understanding through what I've learned and what I've seen is it's completely trainable. When Katrin started working with us, she was a young, immature, and emotionally weak athlete. She's since transformed into one of the most competitive and revered athletes for her mental toughness in the sport. I mean, before she started working with us, it was this famous breakdown of the regionals floor in Europe of her crying with her hands in her head when she couldn't make a rope line. Fast forward a couple of years, and she's like kind of the picture of mental toughness in the sport. That's built. That's developed. That's not something that was she was born with or it was created. You know, it's something. Can that, you go through that process? Like, um, like give me some examples. So, I mean, I, yeah. obviously, I remember seeing her uh, fail at regionals and not make the games. When I know uh, was the reason she's probably crying because I know Reebok had a bunch of uh, some money and a lot of publicity behind her because I went out and I did that seminar out there and I saw they were gearing up thinking she was going to be the next it girl. And then all of a sudden she doesn't make it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I saw her meltdown on the, you know, on the computer. And then, uh, all of a sudden she kind of goes through and, you know, goes through probably a dark time and then comes back and ends up doing very, very well the next year. Can you go through the process that you take your athletes through? Is it, uh, I mean, cause from just briefly what I've seen, it seems to be very inclusive. I mean, like I see, uh, you know, I think I follow you on Instagram and like, I'll, you know, pictures at the family table and like these people just aren't necessarily athletes. They kind of, <laughs> add them into your family and your whole structure? Yeah. So 
Katrin's situation was a little unique because she came and lived with us and it was a great experience all around and, um, you know, not something I'm able to do with all my athletes. So while that was a little bit unique and amazing, what I try and do with all my athletes is very similar. So when Katrin first came to us, one of the first workouts she had at our gym, she was doing some lifting session, misses a lift, and she takes her weight belt off. Like a lot of athletes do, she had this emotional kind of like response where she's you know, throwing her weight belt down, yelling, and then she goes a little fit in a pity party in the corner. She storms out the door and slams the door behind her. And I follow her out behind her. And I was had a conversation with her. And, you know, that's not the character traits we're trying to instill. It's not what we believe a champion looks like. We believe a champion responds, doesn't react. Then there's a two different situations. There's two different scenarios that most people might see those things the same. To me, a reaction is emotional, it's guttural, it's non-thought out, it's um, something you're going to regret in the, in the short term or even in the long term. A reaction is calculated, it's thought out, it's um, for the betterment, it's something you'll be proud of down the road. What's going to set you up for the better results on the next one? And I'm not saying train or compete without emotion, without intensity at all. I draw the line between intensity and emotionalism. And I try to get my athletes to be as unemotional as possible, but as intense as possible. So the process is probably simpler than it may seem. It's calling my athletes out when they're not following the character traits I'm looking for. One of the things that I believe is a, is a important thing is to focus on things you have control over. If my athletes come in from a workout in outside in March in Boston and they come back in and they're talking about how cold it was, we stop and we say, let's focus on the things that we have control over. That's a complaint. Let's stop complaining about that stuff. You know, it's much like if you see the guys on the sidelines at NFL games and they're all kind of huddled up and freezing and stuff like that, like you have no control over the weather. Let's get past that. And if you can get past it, it's now a competitive advantage where you know the other guys are weaker minded. They're focusing on that. I'm not saying you have to be out there in short sleeves. You can prepare for it. No, that's exactly why you wear off. short sleeves. That's exactly yeah. the reason we wear short sleeves. Is well, you're a lineman, so you're tougher than all the rest of us. No, I mean, but that was the exact same reason. You wear short sleeves because it's cold. And then you see the defensive line guys come out and they got the you know, ninja masks on and the full sleeves and they're out there shivering with the hand warmers. Yeah, so you're, you know that it's affecting cold. Them. Well, yeah, I mean, but uh, um, so for me, uh, um, emotional investment like uh um, like like high levels of emotion are more physically and mentally taxing than any type of fucking anything like like uh, you can run a hundred miles to me is is less physically taxing than uh having like these super highs and lows and i used to watch guys that were extremely what i called they they like rode the lightning of emotion where everything was about emotion and the problem is they had huge peaks and huge valleys and they couldn't maintain consistent uh, output because they had to ride that emotional deal and uh, it just it was too uh, there's no way to sustain that level of high emotion over a long period of time so you almost for me especially I took the serial killer approach where I was like you know calm cool and collected and I'm gonna Love go that. out and I'm gonna execute, uh, execute my job um, what's interesting with the CrossFit stuff uh, it seems to lend claim and somehow place uh, big amounts of like importance and value on these fucking high emotion type people and i watch people uh and i always wonder too like um little known fact and i've talked about it here uh in my entire football career nfl college all that i never once saw the crowd and i never heard the crew or the crowd 
everything was real quiet on on game day and i just never noticed it it just was like whereas other guys it was like intimidating for them or whatever so i wonder for a lot of the athletes that come out if uh the crowd and being in front of this big you know audience or whatever in your underwear pretty much uh is is you know is uncomfortable or you know, because they don't necessarily get to train in that setting. You think in football, you kind of have preseason or whatnot. So a lot of the athletes aren't necessarily used to it. And I watch a lot of these guys, uh, you know, when we're watching the games who are pretty consistent and really good. And you see them in the regionals and, and you know them. Then all of a sudden they get out in front of the big crowd. And uh, I think the fucking emotion catches them and they kill themselves. Well, Ben, you talked about in your book uh, different levels of even games athletes, right? So the athletes that it's okay, they made it to the games, they get the clothing, cool. And then you have the people that truly yeah. believe that every single workout is their Dude. opportunity to take home the championship or podium. But isn't that how like most people are? Like, I mean, there's people that are just happy to show up. Like, hey, I was happy to go to minicamp. And then there's other people that are like, I'm here to go to the Hall of Fame. They're called D3 All-Stars, John. Yeah, John. Uh, We're right I, in front of you. <laughs> but I, I think like, um, and, and this is different in the CrossFit deal. Like, uh, you know, my experience with the CrossFit Games was uh, two weeks before the 2008 Games. Dave Castro asked me if they wanted to film a movie. And they wanted me to compete. And like, what, you know, for what, where? And uh, my ego, which was fucking probably way too big, was like, yeah, fuck that. I'll win that thing. And then I go to training camp with the Patriots six days later. So imagine that shit. But uh, like that level and what was kind of interesting is, um, uh, you know, you take uh, people with a lot of ego and always used to being like the big fish in the little pond within their gym. And then you put them into these big situations and actually seeing uh, what I really liked is to see people implode. Um, and I, I mean, I've saw this this year watching the games of people who I thought were going to do extremely well weren't even on the screen. And then, you know, and then seeing the, the people that uh, like, and Ben, you could talk about this shit much better because I mean, you, you, you actually work with these people on a daily basis, but like uh, seeing the two girls from Australia, um, who is it, Tia? Tia and Kara Webb. And, yeah. and Kara Webb. And then looking at how many times those girls had been to the games and seeing like the level of confidence in the moving and all that. And then, um, you know, and I think that to me was the most impressive is like seeing it like, uh, I'm not only used to being here, I should be here and I'm going to win this fucking thing opposed from some people that were just stoked to get short the t-shirts. But that's the mindset that Ben talks about in his book. Uh, I Ben looking at the pyramid, I really enjoyed how almost the, the process is the test. It's the check for the person. So with like John talked about right. peaks and valleys, that's with a, a team. So a team, some guy could be emotional, and when he drops down, it's the expectation that a leader keeps him level or somebody else's performance goes up when one can't go down. But a sport like fitness or boxing or swimming, it's all in the individual. Yeah, so, but, but I mean, think about MMA. All the MMA guys always have teams. So you can, like, team Arisa Frazier or um, Uriah Frazier uh, Fe, uh, or whatever up in uh, Sacramento. They have a team, and those guys all train even though they compete as individuals. So like taking the team mentality, I just, uh, I wonder, and you're pretty lucky. You have some pretty good guys in your stable, I would say. So you probably have a high level of competition. Is there ever a situation where you would add additional people if it became available? Um, no, I've had, I've had people reach out and see if I would, uh, like to be, um, a part of their journey to the games. And I really feel like I'm at my capacity with four athletes. You know, I, I think that, I, I truly believe that to do this really, really, really well, it would be a one-on-one -on -one situation. You know, I think that it's that much of a commitment to that one athlete to really know them and be with them. And even kind of spending extra time working on two or three others 
seems like already, like I'm already at my capacity and I can't even imagine bringing on another one on top of that. Do you, do you think that to really develop somebody that you have to put that level of, uh, of commitment forward that, uh, that it's almost like, is it from age, is it experience, is it a sport that they would need that level of, I mean, I guess handholding, if you could think, to kind of get to yeah, that I position? Yeah, it, it's a good question, John. I think it depends on the athlete. Um, I think some athletes like Matt Fraser, absolutely not. Matt, I'm, I'm basically a sounding board for Matt. I give him programming and he bounces, you know, am I in a, on the right place? Am I on the right track? Am I doing the right stuff? Was that a good time? What should I be working on? And I'm a sounding board from that. Whereas Katrin, you know, we're figuring out like, you know, should you be having a 212 grams of carbohydrates or 210? You know, it's Jesus. like we're diet. It's like this dialed minutia. So it, um, I think it just really depends on the athlete. Dude, that's a, uh, that's a level of handling. Uh, whew, I, yeah, yeah I've, I wasn't raised like that and that, that'd be tough for me to deal with. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I've, well, for you, John, it would be like 612 uh, grams no, of carbohydrates I, or 613. Yeah, no. I, John's I, not a carby guy. That's yeah. like, Ben, believe it or not, I'm the carby girl over here. Like, yeah. I need that 600 grams now. I I, I believe in, uh, uh, you'll see this, uh, I think as you age, your ability to tolerance carbohydrate kind of decreases. And I believe in some like, uh, actual you. aging, like uh, periodization in the diet. I mean, what I could eat at 24 was like, you know, like that, like I couldn't eat that way today and still feel like, uh, anything. So yeah, no, no, no way on 600 grams, but Luke on the other hand, easily like oh, in beer. Yeah. Mostly Coors Lights. I'm not going to lie. It, it is, uh, <laughs> like the other question too, I mean, and, uh, you know, good to have you on the podcast so I can ask some of these questions. Do you, do you think that there's a finite, uh, kind of window of opportunity for the CrossFit athlete? Because I mean, we've really seen this like, um, and tennis, Kind of like tennis? Well, yeah, but then all of a sudden there's outliers like, uh, you know, Serena Venus Williams who, you know, are, you know, late 30s and they're still winning stuff and they're as dominant as they were and they kind of go through these these ebb and flows, peaks and valleys. I just wonder if the amount of, uh, like, I guess you could say output because it's such a high motor, high volume, high intensity kind of output that there's like this this finite window that the athletes can kind of hit like, hey, you're you're in your prime of this and in two or three years... You're probably you're probably still going to get to the games, but you're going to be one of those people that get to come in the second heat, not the first one. And is that yeah, okay with I, you? Absolutely, hundred percent. I equate it very much to a sport like hockey. So hockey, it's a high motor sport. It's high energy. It takes all those ten physical capabilities. You can't just be fast. You have to be fast and have endurance and stamina and strength and ability. You have to have the whole deal. It's a high contact and um, kind of across the board a demand on the athletes. So. I think it's um, very, very similar where athletes can emerge and be successful in their late teens, which happens in hockey, but nobody really comes into their prime until they're in their mid-20s. 23 through 27 is where all of the top athletes seem to be thriving. And then when athletes get to be in their young 30s, there everyone knows they're on their backswing. Do you have the outliers? Yeah, you have those guys that are the leadership guys that are still in the locker room in their 39 and their 40s. But, you know, it, it's like Neil Maddox, right? Like he's there and he's still killing it. It's an amazing thing, but he's not in contention to win the thing. It's, so I equate very much that. I think that there's a 10-year span, if you're lucky, if you get into it early, which is essentially 20 to 30 with a peak right around 26, 27. So I guess we're seeing now the, there's a high school age group with the sport of fitness 
will that window drop lower to closer to 18 or will it kind of push this farther, deeper, longer? Oh, and uh, do you agree that there should be a high school category for CrossFit? Both good questions. Uh, <laughs> Next question, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. Um, do I first question? Do I believe that the, having the younger kids, the teenagers in there, will extend or bring the window down below? I don't. I think it's just like having minor league hockey or college hockey or pee wee. I think it's just people are just going to uh, hit their peak in their 20s. I think they're going to be better. I think generation after generation, we're going to get better and better and better. Do I think that there should be a teenage division? I do because there's a demand for it and people want to. Do I believe it's the right thing for teenagers to be doing? I don't. I think they should be playing team sports. Um, and if I had my pick of you know, what athletes should be playing, I would pick things like um, team sports like basketball. I believe basketball is an incredible all-around athleticism sport. You know, if I was, this is to get somebody to be an elite, if this is the goal, like they're trying to be an elite CrossFit and win the CrossFit games, I would want that athlete to grow up with a gymnastics and a weightlifting background as a kid. Cause I think that just, those are things that take decades, not years to get good at. Then from there in their high school ages, I want them to be playing basketball. Cause I think the pure athleticism that comes from that is huge. And I want them to be doing uh, track and field and potentially wrestling just for the mindset piece of it. Yeah. Or fucking lacrosse. No, uh, are you talking aren't like, about? Uh, aren't crew guys like real fucked up, dude? I remember like just and they these guys would be what, hacked. Crew, up. you mean rowers? Yeah. Oh yeah, they, like they, they usually have terrible, bo uh, terrible body mechanics. But yeah, usually are capacity can suffer. Yeah. So yeah, like, that's like a that's like cyclists too, but cycle it just doesn't have enough carry over to other stuff. Yeah, well, they'll have a huge the engine. Being but, is yeah, because it's so one dimensional. If you think about yeah, the cycling, uh, it's there's really yeah you know, one pattern. But no so pattern. the difference between cycling and rowing, it's it rowing is not like an arc. You got your spot in the the boat so you're either just twisting left for four years in college yeah, or you're awful. twisting right for four years in college <laughs> it's awful. so those are those were the most broken individuals i ever worked with mm -hmm. but guess what they could freaking suffer like oh. no other well, yeah. their day starts at 4 a.m and it's walking all the mm -hmm. way down freaking in the freezing cold the cold water then sit then, in the cold yeah. water and then they got weightlifting 12 hours later and then it starts all again yeah, yeah. sleep is not in their freaking yeah, it's awful. vocabulary no, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, uh, yeah, like you said, if there's a demand, they should do it. But I actually disagree with actually having a, a high school uh, teenage groups for this deal. I think there's at the competitive uh, level, at though. the competitive level. Do yeah. I think that, uh, you know, increased work capacity, broad time, modal domains, uh, you know, should we put something in that? The problem is, is that it's an incomplete system for developing athletes because one uh, we're talking about all closed loop environments. We're not talking about any open loop. There's no free play. There's no movement within space. Everything's sagittal plane done in a, in, in a, uh, in a hallway. And I think while developing basic skills, you have to push outside of that. Now you look at saying, uh, you know, gymnastics is great for developing athleticism. It's true in that closed loop environment, but at some point you have to put them in some open play. So you talk about weightlifting, gymnastics, closed loop, and then you start putting them into more open loop, like a basketball and movement in space where you're reacting to another person. So, yeah, let's set definitions to these oh, for anyone sorry. that's listening to, I guess, our perspective for the first yeah. time. Okay. Yeah, the, the idea is uh, closed loop environments are ones that are known tasks. So when we talk about, uh, you know, the definition for us with athleticism, you know, known and novel tasks, the idea of like known tasks. So Olympic weightlifting. I know exactly what a snatch, clean, and jerk should look like. There's mm -hmm. no surprises. At no point is somebody going to come running on the platform and spear me in the side as I go to snatch the weight. 
Same with gymnastics. I know that I, I exactly that the balance beam is going to be four inches and what I'm going to execute. I've rehearsed it. I've done it. I've practiced it. And my ability to get graded is on my execution of a known task. Open loop would be something like you're playing football. You're a linebacker. I don't know where the, the ball is going and I got to make an open field tackle. But then a field goal kicker, right, snaps the ball. He kicks it. He knows exactly mm-hmm. what it should be. That's a more of a yeah. So it's loop. when so. it's when you have to process the central the nervous system has to process information to determine a different motor pattern, right? So this is for you, Levi. Okay, one of our intern guys. Who's it's also a, working on his PhD, yeah. which is ironic. I know. It's the the fact that the field goal kicker, there may be wind, there may be moisture, but the pattern is rehearsed. Yes. Right? Just like in golf. Like uh the the kickers and the quarterbacks were always excellent mm-hmm. golfers for one reason is that they were skinny pussies and only skinny <laughs> pussies are good at golf. But no, I'm I'm just kidding on that one. But no, I mean, the, the, but that I, but that idea of repetitive movement pattern, and I used to joke the motor and, control. I, so, I, I used to joke, and even though it's fucking terrible to say, I used to call them autistic monkeys mm-hmm. because they were so good about like focusing and mastery of movement that like watching those guys punt the ball, it was unreal. Like just fucking imagining some dude's face there and being like, this guy's gonna die. Mm-hmm. But like that definition of uh, of mastery was was important. So I mean, I think as a young if you're going to develop an athlete, you have to develop uh, a set of uh, closed loop finite skills, uh, you then know, expose. and then expose those. So, I mean, that's why I think for, uh, and I got like a whole bunch of theories watching this CrossFit stuff. The reason that the girls are so much more, um, I played in the NFL and there were a lot of Jack dudes. Um, so the CrossFit guys look like fucking skinny dudes to me, but, uh, seeing the girls, <laughs> I have never in my life seen girls, carry more muscle or more muscle and be in better shape uh, than, than I've ever seen population. in CrossFit. And, right. and I'm talking about figure or bodybuilding. Like the, the girls in the CrossFit games could probably, with about two days of dehydration, walk in and win just about any contest they want in terms of bodybuilding or fitness. But if you also look at the girls that, that extremely are very, very good at the CrossFit stuff, they usually come out of what kind of background? What do you think? You know this, like gymnastics? Yeah, it's usually a lot of people do really well at gymnastics. Um, soccer has been a big one. Like there's soccer, um, but yeah, it's for sure gymnastics. I think gymnastics and weightlifters have such an advantage in our sport because it takes so long to get good at those things. Sure. You know, if you talk about like level one through level six gymnastics, you're talking about like 15 years sure. to get there. You know, it, it's a year before they have people swinging on a bar because they just work on a hollow position for a year. Like what an advantage for body awareness and the strength, you know, relative body strength that comes from that stuff. So I, I, I took my little girls, I got uh, twin girls. I took them at, uh, they were like three years old or sorry, just over two or sorry, two and a half to gymnastics and, uh, watching how they developed, uh, developed the girls and how they progress them in the movements and watching this. And I remember, uh, when my daughters were like five, I would take them early and we'd go watch the older girls train. And literally watching the amount of work that these girls were putting in, I was like, man, I wish I could uh, somehow suck CrossFit coaches into coming and watching. Because the one thing that has been completely bastardized, and the one thing actually I really always enjoyed about, uh, uh, you know, talking to Greg about development uh, or athletic development was the idea of skill progression and developing skills in a low intensity, like low motor learning, like very low emotional state. And um, the thing, and I think what, what happened with the CrossFit uh, is people completely fucking forgot about that shit, and it just became three, two, one, go. Let's fucking set the sh- you know set it on fire. And just going and watching the girls develop for three hours, like to watch them work on gymnastics, 
low heart rate. Every movement was high intensity, like 100%. When I say intensity, I mean effort, like in terms of like, hey, I'm going to go with, you know, 100% on this vault because they can't necessarily do any of this shit slowly. Like watching the girls run down the runway, hit the vault and do some form of tumbling. If they do it slow, they're going to get hurt. 50%. No. So there is no scaling. There really is no like uh, or, uh, uh, sandbagging of the workout. And there's really no nothing. You either make the vault or you don't. And, and then they rest until they're ready to do that, uh, that kind of max effort type deal. So seeing that level of progression and then wishing that I saw more of that in the CrossFit instead of just what people want, which is, hey, set me on fire. I want to feel like I got a good response. Right. Yeah, it's that level of virtuosity that CrossFit was intended to have, which is that doing the common uncommonly well. It's like, let me, let me see your air squat and let's practice and train and hone that air squat. And it might take six months before we get you underneath a barbell. And that's the appropriate way to do that. You know, having said that, the, the other thing I, I do like about just the flip side of that is there is this level of like, I can do that. I can, um, it's gotten so many people off the couch because it doesn't have this slow, you know, I, before I did CrossFit, I did, um, NASA, national court Academy of sports medicine. And they had this amazing, amazing protocol to get your athletes all in muscular balances. You mean, and make sure the, all you mean the NSAM? Yes. It's awful. Yeah. You can say and, and it's, like, it's fucking awful. It's, in theory, it's, it's like, I, I get it. It's like, it's supposed to work. But it doesn't. Compliance, nobody's yeah. going to sit yeah. through that. It's one of the reasons that people, you can't get adults to do gymnastics because nobody has the patience to sit through that. At age four, five, six, seven, they can sit there and they can, for whatever reason, kids have better attention. They can actually do that. Adults don't have the, the patience to sit there and learn how to hold a hollow position perfectly and that's the class. Thanks, guys. Yeah, but you think about it. I mean, where you develop sk skill and proficiency is with an isometric movement. And, I mean, that's something, too. I Absolutely. remember, uh, you know, the, most people forget there's three muscle contractions. And you <laughs> develop stability and strength with that isometric hold. But yet, uh, you know, I haven't walked into a CrossFit gym and seen anybody basically working on a basic isometric hold other than a handstand push-up. Or, sorry, well, a handstand. So, I mean, like that, that, oh, shit, I'm sorry. Um, that becomes something that's extremely kind of interesting. Like, I just wonder uh, what it sounds like is the, the, the way that people are training their games athletes. And uh, this is kind of interesting, too, because uh, uh, when we were doing a little bit of reading up, you were talking about, you know, periodization, especially in the book, Periodizing for Athletes. And then you get the Russell Burgers over there being like, well, there's no periodization. It doesn't exist. But in actuality, if you want to get your athletes better, you have to eff effectively figure out their weaknesses and do some block periodization and actually cycle them for the major deal. Like if you have, uh, you know, these guys trying to get ready for next year's 2018 games, you're not going out there and trying to torch them three weeks out because that just happens to randomly pall upon that. So like there has to be some progression or you have to have some level of assessment. And I'm sure you guys do it. You probably uh, snatch, clean, jerk, work Olympic weightlifting, you work skill, and you probably work the skill in the gymnastics here for a huge portion in the off season. And then at which point you start adding in more, uh, you know, high intensity type work to develop, you know, that capacity. But the problem is you can't always develop those skills in that kind of emotional situation. John, are you asking for Ben's secret sauce right now? No, it's no, I, 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 this is how I'm non, this is how non crazy people train. Because uh, just like, 
you know, like uh, training for football. Like there was a there there was a period where in the off season I knew I knew I had to get healthy, and then I had to develop strength up to a point, and then at which point I had to work on some other things. And you prioritize different things as you need them. And like even though you're doing things in a concurrent model, you have to have a little bit of block periodization involved in this. And what do I we think call the that separation then? is is or the difference is um, competitors and everyday athletes. Right. Competitors have a known set date where they have to be ready, right? They and they have then a traditional real off season where they have to get their bodies healthy, and because of that, it leads into a perfect block periodization program. And that you can talk about it in terms of you know let's build tons of strength and let's build tons of skills and let's build tons of conditioning, or is it little or steps along the way? And that's just that's coach to coach or athlete to athlete program program. I think the major difference is between regular people. There is no known game day. You don't know when you have to run up the flight of stairs to rescue someone from a burning building. You don't know when you're going to be um, asked to go on that hike that you need to put the backpack on and go. You don't know when. So there's this more of a – I'm not saying it's just no periodization period at all, but it's less of a known end date because there is no set date that we're going to peak for there's no off season either. And if there's no off season, then there's no, it's just a smoother ride. Now so I do think that there's a, a, a place for sure for mechanics, then consistency, then, and only then relative sustainable intensity. So, so does, I think what does your, sorry, not, not to cut you off, but so does this sound like you train your games athletes different than you train your gen pop at your gym? A hundred percent. Hundred percent. So, what would be a major like? Uh, so, if you're kind of, uh, you know, so, so now we're getting into something where you know the idea of increased work capacity, broad time motor domains in terms of like fitness for the gen pop is a different definition of fitness for a games. And now we're not even talking about fitness; we're really talking about performance. And you're trying to maximize the performance of your athletes to effectively win or point score points high enough on a weekend in August where Dave Castro gets to select the workouts in Madison, Wisconsin. That's exactly right. So what we're trying to do for our games athletes is a very short term approach. Sure. I need my athletes to be the fittest they've ever been in their entire lives on that day, on that day. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So the approach there is really, really different, you know, and the risks we'll take to get there are really, really different. And the volume and the loading and the lifting and the skill and the amount of time that they have to commit to this is very, very different than somebody who I believe majority of the people here for two reasons. They want to look better and they want to not be sick when they're 85 years old. And your definition of sick can be whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It can be See, I, this, is where I, this is where I'm going to – I disagree because – well, first off, hang on. Let me backtrack. It is possible – to get people to get them to get those what they're looking for out of their gym with various different techniques other than even CrossFit. Like if you people want to look good and be healthy, like we can do all sorts of other shit. We could just do some bodybuilding stuff and some Pilates, Pilates and fasted cardio. Now, do I do I think that's cool? No, but it would it work? Maybe. I think that the and you t- you tell me because I'm not the fucking guy with guys and the gals in the games. But isn't the difference just slope? It's the same drills, it's the same skills, it's the same training methodology, just the slope is slightly different in terms of the desired training response. No. Why not? Yeah. 
Because my regular um, everyday athletes, I don't need a guy in my gym to be able to do 25 unbroken muscle-ups. Mm-hmm. The path to get to 25 unbroken muscle-ups has so much risk and so much wear and tear associated with it. It would be irresponsible for me as a coach to say, your goal is to be 85 years old, still driving a convertible, playing 18 rounds of golf, and having sex every night. Mm-hmm. That's what you're looking for, for true health, wellness, and longevity. Why am I going to try and risk a partial labrum tear of the shoulder by trying to get to 25 muscle-ups? For my games athletes, if you're a guy and you don't have 25 unbroken muscle-ups, you're not going to win the CrossFit Games. Sure. It's a very different skill set that these guys need. So do your general, rep- does your general pop do muscle-ups? In, in very, uh, those who are, who have been assessed and have progressed with the skill development, probably do muscle ups and the coaches make that call. Do you need to be able to do muscle ups to be yeah. fit? Yeah, that's, no, that's, the answer to that is, the answer to that is it depends on their goals. Mm-hmm. If their goals are to do well in the open and their goals are to hang with their buddies in the class. Yes. Mm-hmm. If not, no, they don't, they don't do muscle ups. Yeah. And I guess this is where, you know, I, there's a there's an even more interesting talk to have, and I you know you're probably just not familiar with with kind of where we fall within the strength and conditioning paradigm. But my here's what I've Tex and I traveled around and we talk we try to it, preach the value of a warm up for your general pop prior to competitive open, right? And that it is really the defining factor. If they go in like the cheetah doesn't stretch, they're going to get fucked up, potentially hurt, and they're not going to perform well. well. But where we where where we where these what's interesting within the, a lot of the CrossFit coaches we work with and maybe, you know, various levels, uh, you know, some with games athletes, some without, they fail to see the commonalities of strength and conditioning, just let's say core strength and conditioning, not necessarily NASM or CSCS, but a lot of what we preach at Power Athlete, that it's, it, it's all the same. The only difference is the top of our pyramid, which is the competitive domain, right? Everybody needs to have some sort of foundation of nutrition that fuels performance. We also need to have basic strength and conditioning movements in the form of barbell lifts and uh, our Olympic lifts. We need to work on replication of speed. We need to work on body awareness. And most importantly, we need to identify and address limiting factors, right? And that those practices have infinite numbers of of methods to actually enforce that, uh, you know, within our within our philosophy and our system, we try to u- limit the scope for the beginner, and then start to, you know, in terms of movement selection, drills, and skills, and then as someone progresses along what we call their athlete life cycle, we introduce things to continue to stress to progress, right? And I guess with that said, in that dynamic, that's how we, within that context, we treat our potential Olympians the same as some dipshit who walks off the street and just wants to lose some weight. Yeah. But like, I mean, that's the idea of a uh, skill progression. I mean, like, uh, you know, we talk about like, uh, the worst thing you can do for beginners offer them too much variety. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm going to teach you if my basic bilateral hip hinge, uh, is a barbell back squat, let's just teach the barbell back squat until, you know, people like, Oh, you know, what about accommodation? I want you to accommodate. I want you to get really good at it. Mm-hmm. I want you to develop that movement pattern because the worst thing I can do is start throwing too much variation of movement in too early. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then if somebody becomes more advanced, now all of a sudden you're like, okay, hey, you know what? We might have to do some other things. I might have to change the, the, the body position for a front squat or we have, might teach an over, overhead squat. But can you get, make an athlete extremely, you know, can we get somebody strong without an overhead squat? Of course. But are they, if you can't overhead squat, are you going to do well at the CrossFit Games? No. no. So I think there's like this, this idea of like, and I hate to fucking kick this horse again. Like, what are you training for? Who's the individual that you're going after? And then, you know what? Like the problem is, is I don't think 
Like people are looking at people driving a Ferrari and thinking, well, that's what I got to start on for, uh, mm. for driver's ed. So they're showing up to the CrossFit gym and they're like, well, Hey, I watched the CrossFit games. Like I can't do this stuff. And you're like, well, yeah, uh, most people can't, but that's really not why you're here. We're here to, you know, for what, you know, what's the, uh, the identification of your training and why I can't do a muscle up. That's great. Well, I'm going to teach you to do a pull up. I'm going to teach you to do a dip. And maybe one day, once you develop enough strength in those two movements, we might be able to slip you into a muscle. Mm-hmm. But how many do I need you to do? Not 25 in a row. And right. like I, I, We uh, got the bar to use with. Yeah. We, like but, I, I think but, this is like the, uh, the issue we run into is that people always look at the, you know, the pinnacle, like the highest level of this stuff, and they try to extrapolate it when that's not the case. So. Well, so Ben talks about overloading here. So whether we're talking about gen pop athlete, we're talking about a open competitor or regionals games, whatever, they still have to stress to progress. Sure. So whether that, I guess, Ben, I, I don't program for any form of fitness athlete, but overload principle is talked about here. So let's talk about what essentially, how do you work overload into a general population class that has no cycles or no off season in that? How do you, you know, work that magic? Yeah. So, um, Kind of to piggyback off of John's thought there, which I, I loved, is another really kind of big differentiator is what's like how deep of an adaptation do we need to get? So for our regular population, all we're looking for there is what's called sec, what's called second wave adaptation. For our games athletes, we need a third wave adaptation, which is essentially if we take something as simple as like a bench press. If you have a kid that walks off the street and he's a, you know, a, a freshman in high school and he's 6'2", 145 pounds, and you send him off in some sort of linear progression of five-by-fives benches, he's going to get underneath an empty barbell, and that first time he does it, the bar's going to be all wobbly and all over the place. Well, when he comes back in next week and he does that, he's going to have 65 pounds on the bar, and the bar's going to go straight up and down. That's just a first-wave adaptation. He's, it's not going to make him a better football player. He's just getting better at the bench press. Now, if he keeps training that, and he goes up from that 65 pounds and after five, six, seven months, he's putting up 185 and 225. That's true adaptation. That's he's getting more cross filament fibers. He's getting uh, stronger. He can move external loads. That's going to put him in a better position on the football field. That's a fitness that's transferable outside of the gym for our regular members. That's our number one goal. We don't want them to get good at the gym. And that's what all these CrossFitters in my mind are really striving to get is I want to get better at muscles. Why? Because I want to be better in the gym. I want to get better at my snatch because I want to get better at the gym. It's like, if it doesn't transfer outside, Mm -hmm. I don't really care about it for my regular members. I don't think most of them should. That's why we don't use weightlifting shoes, knee sleeves, wrist wraps, smelling salts or anything else because you're not going to have that in the real world. Now for our third wave adaptation, for our games competitors, they compete in that sport. Mm-hmm. They have to learn how to externally rotate the bar on the way down and spread the bar on the way up. They should maybe be using board presses and how to some accessory work to find the weaknesses at your triceps or your lats in the bench press. They should be learning on how to drive through their feet in the, you know, all those things. That's their sport. And that third wave adaptation, all those little percentages matter because they're being tested in that. If you're not being tested in the bench press, why does it really matter if you have, you know, besides ego and you want to, you know, when someone says, what's your bench, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter that much if it's 265 or 295. Are you, are you suggesting that the bench press is going to make its way into the 2018 game? Oh, God, I would love it. <laughs> what if it was like a, uh, uh, I don't know, like some. Well, I just want to go back, though. And you're, Ben, we, you are 100% right because we are 
the the numbers don't fucking matter, right? And whether you're, you know, even within the, the, as much as the numbers matter in the games, they don't. You know what I mean? When some of those athletes struggle on the pegboard, did it matter how many unbroken pull-ups they could do? Because it didn't fucking matter because they couldn't do the pegboard. Muscle contraction. Right? So coming back to it, uh, numbers are just for us. We use it as a marker of overload, specifically of overload. So even, you know, and uh, spoiler alert, we have a fundamental difference of opinion on the importance of strength for the general pop, right? And can they, can we get people more fit without getting them stronger? A hundred percent. People are doing it all the time. And uh, I'd say a lot of people are, but at our gym back at Balboa in CrossFit Balboa in Newport beach strength, we treated those guys like they were, truly were a team and we were training them for like the fucking NFL, you know, but within the volume constraints that maintained quality of life for those folks, like you said, mm-hmm. no one, we weren't training anyone to get, you know, like a, a 50 rep 225 test or anything like that. But even our yogi Sounds moms, Iowa, even, Iowa football, even our yogi moms who came in, First like all, fuck those kids. We, we put them on linear progression and they saw amazing results inside and outside of their gym. So that's it's just great. like, um, well, well, strength that's the big thing. If it's, if it's amazing results inside and eh, regular pop and eh, outside the gym, if it's reg- phenomenal results outside the mm-hmm. gym, that transfers to, well, what's your marker for productive. outside the gym? So are, that's, are, that's a are, great question. are you setting up things like, like this is, uh, as soon as you said it, I thought, you know, like, what's the test? If the marker for the training in the gym is success outside the gym, then are you sitting with each client being like, okay, what's going to be your outside the gym test? No. Is there, is there uh, uh, he, He's fucking yeah. counting Katrin's fucking, fucking carbs almonds. every day. She can't <laughs> like, have time She's for that. only allowed to have 12 almonds a day. And then, you know, and then you fat shame her when no, she has that, like, th- that is a bandwidth issue. And I know that, like, there's no way you. But, uh, but, no, but I think the test is truly, it's, it's one that we're not going to be able to test for, mm-hmm. which is what's your, you know, work. So if fitness is work capacity across broad time and mobile domains, health is worse. Health is work capacity across broad time, mobile domains over your lifespan. Mm-hmm. So it's truly when you're 85 years old, how healthy are you going to be? And we just believe in this system that if you train with constantly varied functional movements performed at relatively and sustainable uh, high intensity, that's going to set you up for the best biomarkers and all around fitness. So we can use all these as a correlate to a long productive life. And you can use, take your pick, body fat, cholesterol, you know, it doesn't matter to me, your mile times, your deadlift, but not one at the expense of others. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to try to get a 500 pound deadlift, but you have to go to 28% body fat to get there. Mm -hmm. Right. It's similarly, I don't want you to go to um, 9% body fat if your deadlift goes down to 185 pounds. Like we want everything tracking together. And when everything tracks together, which by the way, if you do this broad and general inclusive program, it does, Mm -hmm. then that's our marker for outside the gym. Because we believe that what we're doing, as long as we're not geeking out and trying to get better at muscle-ups for the sake of muscle-ups, we're doing it just to perform better everywhere. That's what we're looking for. And I believe that if you do a broad general inclusive program, that's going to happen because you can't sit there and spend nine months trying to, you know, spend an hour and a half a day trying to get a muscle like a gymnast mm-hmm. does. We don't believe gymnasts have the same work capacity as our general pop does. We, 
forget their program. And I think, but, but if, but in terms of skill progression, if you like, you don't give somebody doesn't get muscle ups just fucking working on muscle ups. Mm -hmm. You develop the skill of like, hey, can I do a vertical pull? Can I pull a chest of bar pull up? Uh, can I do a, a strict ring dip? And how many can I do that mm -hmm. you know don't look like I'm trying well, to even you know, flexed arm hang, offset flexed arm hang, uh, neutral grip. Can I control eccentrics? How long can I hold ISO? At which joint angles can I hold ISO? Like there's like these are all and we can go geek out on that and you can tailor training all around it. And is that really appropriate for, like you said, the general pop? No, but for someone who needs to well, control on a pegboard or high rep muscle ups, maybe, I don't know. It's right? like if you're trying to increase your vertical jump, one of the worst things you can do, aside, like now you can practice your vertical jump, you can figure out the most advantageous position, reach, and you can start talking about technique on the vertical. But actually training the vertical from just trying to do vertical jumps does nothing to mm -hmm. develop your vertical jump. Now all of a sudden you start talking about stretch shortening cycle, rate coding, uh, myelination, getting my barbell back squat the more that I can clean. Now I'm doing some form of dynamic pulling mm -hmm. against an external force. All of those things, then you walk over and now all of a sudden you put two or three inches on your vertical jump. Like to me, it seems that if uh, if I want to make everything better, I can effectively make a stronger organism. And then also, you think about how you challenge posture and position. If you like, I've seen people fucking air squat, and I've never seen uh, you know, and I've seen people air squat too much. But in, invariably, the air squat doesn't look like any of the barbell type movements. You know, it's not like I can look at that air squat and be like, shit, man, that air squat looks just like a barbell back squat. I bet that guy squats 500 pounds, 200 no. pounds. Like, yeah, yeah it, it doesn't. And, uh, you know, so now all of a sudden you're training now as an air squat, just, uh, you know, an element of fitness. Is it this? Should you be air squats? Yeah. Do air squats suck? Yeah, they tire your legs out. But it doesn't have anything to do with my ability to squat 500 pounds. Now, if somebody could do 100 unbroken air squats, uh, is that better than saying, hey, I can back squat 500 pounds? Well, I think... I'm going to speak for Ben. You want to do both, right? No, if but, I, if but I not, had my choice between those two, I would choose the 500. There's, yeah, just, but, there's greater yeah, nobody goes to the bar and brags right. about being able to do 100 unbroken air squats. But here's the thing. It would not be at the expense Anymore. of necessarily... <laughs> they used to. Not after this fucking podcast. But you wouldn't want to train it at the expense of losing the rest of those tangible skills that right. contribute to overall, right? And, and I'm yeah, on board with that. And that's, uh, I guess... Um, uh, what, what, I, want, I want to go back to... So... The, a lot of the stuff that we we're talking about here, like it's there's practical, the practical application of it, and then the literal application of it. Because I want to tell you a story about uh, what my hazing when I first fucking moved out from Chicago to work with John, and we went on a program by some fucking <laughs> Bulgarian something John made up when he was drunk no, on Four no, Locos no, no, or something. No, 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 hang on, no, hang on, no, hang on. No, let me let me preface this. So Abijayev, who was the Bulgarian Olympic lifting coach. He came over with Dave Spitz to America, and he had his, uh, uh, his nephew, who really wasn't his nephew, but they mm -hmm. asked him to speak at a NSCA uh, conference and present a program, and they asked him to present a program for a football player yes, based off of the Bulgarian method. Uh -huh. So somebody forwarded me the program, asked me, hey, what do you think uh -huh. about this? And I thought, fuck it, let's try it. <laughs> so I, uh, I looked at it, but what I did is I went back and I did all Abijev's reading and like all the information he had and actually called and spoke to him via translator and he made some really interesting points to me that I wrote down and he kept talking about these three waves that uh, for a little athlete it's a very small wave uh, bigger a medium athlete bigger wave and then uh, a biggest athlete big wave and what it meant was like the drop set so you work up to a one RM uh, you know if you're a little guy you basically drop back to 95% and he just kind of gave these, these uh, deals and then also 
there was something that they called uh, a training max versus your competition max. Sure. And the Bulgarians knew that they had to sandbag. And there's a, they actually have a, wor- a Bulgarian word for this. And so like I learned all this stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. So I wrote the program. And I just gave it to these idiots. And I was and like, he hey, didn't share any of his findings. I didn't share any of the findings, but I did it. But let me. Uh, uh, so so I, uh, I used the findings and all the information I had for my program, but I didn't give these guys and I let Ego get the best of them. No well, change no, no. there. Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> let, me, let me go ahead and preface this. At the time, I was probably 195 pounds, right? And I came in with more of a traditional fitness background, being a kind of head coach at a fitness gym. And like, I wouldn't consider myself super strong, uh, but competent in like every domain, right? And decent times on some of the benchmark workouts. Um, anyways, go through this program for 20 weeks. Uh, I don't think it was 20 exactly, but it was, I thought it was 12 or no. Cause we had Callie do it for 11 and she's like, you guys didn't do this. I went and looked back. It was like, it was, it was a long time, but Ben, let me tell you that it was basically one RMs every day. So <laughs> no, no Mechons. Okay. So <laughs> let we me would give you the, so you work up to a one RM and do drop sets on a push, a pull and a press. Mm-hmm. So it was either squat, uh, like some form of like, and I forgot it, we rotated through the, the movements of basically back squat, front squat, and then I think some other stuff. And then it was like bench, press, push, press, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the different Why presses. don't you let someone who is traumatized by this okay, tell on, the I'm story? <laughs> but no, it was back squat, it was, and then a squat variation cycled out. It's back squat. And a drop set. And then, but you would drop set after these. Anyways, my, here's my moral of the story, man, is, um, uh, so we had four of us doing this, and you know, we're, we're CrossFit coaches in a CrossFit gym that's running, you know, we would call like a strength bias CrossFit, right? Hard, heavy, fast, very CrossFit football-esque influence <laughs> at the time. But we did no Metcon. We did warm-ups. Uh, we did steady state cardio. And then we did these 1RMs. But we did the steady state to recover. And the reason we didn't really mm-hmm. warm up was because uh, the workouts took us so long that yeah. we were really pretty And these are up. like, is it practical for general pop? Probably not because it took three fucking hours of just emotional torment, right? Of doing just these one, these single movement patterns, but maintained. So we maintained at least uh, Ben and I did our. So we would have to demo every warm up for every class, and we have a pretty interesting. I would call it a proprietary kind of warm up catalog. And we could, we'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, we would d- be demoing all these warm-ups where multi-plane, lots of rotation, isometrics, controlled breathing, some of the fundamental things you would do for like active recovery, which helped not like physically, but not emotionally. Uh, put on 17 pounds and, you know, numbers went up. And it was one of these things where I was expecting we had a Fran day <laughs> to celebrate the closing of this program. And we were going to join, and me and Ben jump back into these Fran classes and to much to my surprise, my ability after doing all this intensity work, all this one RM work, my time, and I gained 17 pounds, all my times went down on our testing week. Now, am I an outlier? Perhaps. Ben had the same type of deal. And I guess what I'm getting at is what I want the audience to understand is because there might be some smart motherfucker in here who's going to be like, well, if you can increase neural efficiency, then you could do more well, with less energy. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, you know, <coughs> what I think happened is we've set, spent so much time on this high end intensity work, opened up motor efficiency, and then come down to where all of these weights are so sub maximal relative to the strength gains that it's not a problem for us anymore. So we can almost do more with less. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we saw that base level of strength increased and helped with the, and I will, I will also acknowledge that they're like the sub 12 minute type of testing environment, <laughs> right? Within that domain. So 
Well, I'll just say this. Uh, so I sandbagged and I squatted, I think, uh, mm. between 250 and 300 kilos for singles for 18 days in a row. And that was at the end of the program. I wanted to see how long I could go. And um, I mean, it got to the point where I was like, fuck, dude, this is, you know, this was something's going on here. But I remember we would jump in and do some Metcons. And I was, I think I, at my best, I did 37 pull-ups uh, in a row. And we started doing some like some little Metcon things to test out because these guys were freaking out that they were going to lose their fitness. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden we started throwing some stuff in there, prowler pushes or whatnot. And all 500 of a sudden, meter rows. Yeah, 500 meter rows. And uh, we started killing things. Now, and I always wonder if we, if there was a, um, well, and then I, we just got to the point where I just didn't want to squat anymore. I was like, I'm fucking done. I'm not doing mm-hmm. this anymore. But uh, I think for people that are, you know, one, have the time and the effort to put into type things, I think they can get some deal. But also, uh, was it sustainable? I don't really think so. Well, no, and I wouldn't say you train like that all the time. I get the point I want to get to, and I guess I want to hear your feedback <laughs> on, Ben, is, uh, you know, we have a general saying that, a stronger athlete, and again, understanding that you're not specializing and focusing so much that there's reversibility occurring in other performance areas, but a stronger athlete is typically a more capable athlete within the sport of fitness and uh, within the hobbyist uh, that may not require that, that tier three type of adaptation that just, they, they perform better in the gym and uh, are more useful in that dynamic. But I'll let you kind of go. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I think that strength is um, on the competitive side of thing. It's one of the determining factors. If you look at people that generally do, there's the outliers for sure. Like Garrett Fisher mm-hmm. won the snatch and, you know, he was kind of an outlier, but generally the people that do well in the strength events do well, you know, Tia and Kara Webb did phenomenal in the snatch and they're the two girls on the podium. Annie did phenomenal in the snatch. She's on the podium. You know, Katrin did phenomenal in the snatch and, She's, you know, fifth and, you know, the people that are strong do really well. Mm-hmm. You know, the people in our gym, the people that are stronger are fitter. Absolutely. So I think strength is a huge piece to it. Um, I think that the important thing is, as you guys said, is that you're continuing to test to see, is it detrimental to other things that we're doing? Mm-hmm. I think that it's, um, does that have the capability to bring up the bottom layer of whatever your fitness is? Are you making a bigger can to pour your skills, drills, and everything else into? Absolutely. I think that if you have more strength, you have the capability. So to John's point, if you want to learn to do a muscle-up, it doesn't matter how good your transition or your kip is if you can't do a set number of strict chest-to-bars and a number of strict ring dips. It's just it's not going to happen. So if you get some prerequisite strength in there, all of a sudden all the skills and the technique and everything else that wants to come in is a huge compete to that. I, I do believe also that um, conditioning is equally as important mm-hmm. as strength because I think that there's carryover other which way. If you talk to the other end of the spectrum from maybe powerlifters, it's Chris Hinshaw. You know, Chris Hinshaw with the aerobic side of things, he has the same stories where he takes uh, Camille and Rich Froning, doesn't have them snatch or lift for three weeks just do his aerobic program. Well, we, we observed that as well, man, believe with just steady yeah. state stuff um, yeah, with muscle growth and strength. So I think that the answer to this is it's what you find what works. Mm-hmm. And as long as it's not taking away from the other stuff, like especially if you enjoy it, yeah. that if you enjoy it, compliance is the number one thing. Well, if I mean, you're getting uh, in man, the gym and working hard, and that's the big one. If you're in the gym and you're working hard proactively and nothing is taking away, not so much that you're pouring everything into one bucket, like, mm-hmm. like go kill it. 
go get you, go get underneath the bar. Or if you're Chris Hinshaw, go run 800 repeats, do your thing. You think, uh, I mean, Matt Frazier was pretty dominant this year. I mean, well, watching it almost was, uh, uh, it wasn't nearly as exciting. It's like watching, uh, you know, an NFL team go out and stomp everybody after a while. You just don't want to see the competition anymore. So I, I think, uh, you know, and the race was so much more competitive and close and just so much more exciting for the girls. I mean, uh, Matt comes from a, a, you know, snatch clean and jerk Olympic lifting background, <coughs> excuse me, um, which I think is extremely beneficial. So, I mean, to see him be able to be as consistent. And also, I think uh, the thing that I appreciated about him is uh, he fucking mentally broke a lot of those competitors <laughs> uh, pretty early on by the mere fact that he was like, w- wasn't showing any emotion, didn't look tired, was fucking like, I mean, to the point where I was like, this dude is going to eat these other guys. Guys were like laying and... I hate seeing the dead fish these fucking dudes lay out, but like seeing like these other guys who are finishing behind and pass out and see him just walking away. And I wonder about uh, um, if that's just him or if that's something that you guys actively said, you're like, Hey, you know what? Um, when you go out there, I want you to try to ride these guys. I mean, cause that was a Lance Armstrong deal. I'm going to ride a guy into the ground then I'm going to walk over and act like it's no big deal. I mean, we did the same thing the minute with that uh, a quarter or half would change, we would take off sprinting to the other side of the field while the other guys walked as a way to show like we weren't tired. And I think like yeah. uh, that's what I was watching, thinking like if that was part of the game plan. Uh, we talked about that. that yeah, short answer is yes. <laughs> and then uh, and then the other one is is uh, knowing that uh, Ketron's extremely kind of an emotional athlete, like you talked about earlier. Was there a interesting conversation or process about you know her not making the podium this year after winning it two years in a row, and then uh, you know like that's got to be difficult as a coach. I mean, obviously, I know you uh, you're married and you have a, a daughter as well. I have four kids. So you have four kids. So how many girls? Two. So you get two girls. I, I have a boy and two girls, and you know, girls are much different than boys. So I wonder about like navigating that with you know that situation. Yeah, Katrin. Um, so yes, the answer to that is there was. Um, it was, you know, we go there to win. It's like bottom line. It's like we're there to go to win, and we don't want to take fifth place. Having said that, um, when we walked away. From, during the competition, we always felt like we were in the fight. So there was no time during the competition that there was a let up, a let off the gas pedal, a woe is me or pity party whatsoever. It was a fight to the last workout and the last rep. When it was over, um, I was really impressed, more so impressed with her this year than I ever have been in terms of she realizes, and it's because of why she's been so successful, was that regional event where she did, couldn't climb the rope and she failed and cried. The reason she won the games for the last two years was because of that epic failure. The re- she sees this year again as that revisiting of not an epic failure, but like we are going to learn so much of this, and we did and we have. and We've changed a lot already, but we've. Uh, she came away with this thing like, I think this, and she said this, I think this is my favorite games to date because I know what this is going to do for us going forward. It's not about being inspired or a spark under your ass or like, you know, we'll go prove them now. It's about we've, we've truly figured out some holes and some gaps and some things that we miscalculated. And going forward, we have a good sense. We feel confident. Who knows if we're going to, but we feel like we can have a good roadmap on how to fix those things for this year. So, so kind of like a road, like a, a movie night of Rocky three. You're like, like, I know you're from Iceland, but you're going to watch this. We're going to watch, yeah, we're going to watch Rocky three and we're going to talk about perseverance in this. And, you know, we're going to have to go train in a dank gym out in uh, Venice, California, but don't mind us. But the interesting thing is, had that been Katrin from 
four years ago, it would have been an emotional disaster. Mm -hmm. It would have been crying again. And this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. You know, I wasn't coaching her when she didn't make the, the games that year, but I was her friend. And I sent her a text afterwards and said, you might not know this now, but this could be the best thing that ever happened to you. Mm-hmm. And it took her 10 days to respond from that text because she was an emotional wreck. After this year's games, she said to me, this is going to be the best thing that's ever happened to us. So the amount of growth that's happened over those three years is just, I mean, anybody that says like mental toughness and your character traits are born and you're born with those things and they can't be changed. It's just has, has never worked with athletes that have grown. It's just, it's, you can make athletes tougher and athletes that are think that they are not the most mentally tough. It's not a fixed trait. It is. If you can grow, there's a growth mindset approach or a fixed mindset approach and you can become tougher. And she certainly has. So how, to, how does that dynamic work? I mean, obviously you got a, uh, you know, catching who's, you know, high level to say the least you got Matt Frazier and then you have, did you say Cole? Cole and Brooke. And then Brooke. And then, uh, so how did they finish out this year? Um, well, we know Matt Cole, uh, Katrin was, uh, fifth, fifth. Cole, um, was deep and, uh, Brooke was not where we expected her to be. Both of those guys dealt with some physical things. That's it's their story to tell if they want to tell it, but, oh, so, um, so they, they were coming a little dinged up. There were some issues. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Then, and not um, that that was an excuse because everybody comes dinged up and yeah, everybody experiences things along the way. Yeah, but I also I wonder if uh, you know, like you know, like the uh, like the success of it. Like, and I, I always think too, especially. I mean, I, well, I used to watch this happen to young NFL players all the time. They come in their rookie year and be pretty good, and then that second year, when all of a sudden they're like, hey, I'm, Vin, pretty, I'm Vince, pretty, I'm pretty, Young, I'm pretty fucking good. And then all of a sudden, like the realism of like the time, the commitment, RG three, yeah, the RG threes. And all of a sudden, like they have that weird second year slump and you can always spot like who's going to be the guy that's going to play 10 years or going to be out of the league based off of how they react to that second year. Because they always went through a slump. That's right. Except Russell Wilson. That's true. There are guys. But he's mentally tough. uh, Yeah, but I mean, (laughs) like like, mental toughness, like I think uh, um, you were on a podcast and uh, you made made a point that you thought that the reason that Tom Brady was so successful was because he was drafted in the sixth round. I think it's one of the one of the reasons. It's not the reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I heard that and I was like, uh, I don't think it's that simple. But like, I sometimes think that like yeah, athletes he's fucking Tom Brady and he's yeah. carved out of marble. Well, no, the, but he's all, I, Himalayan mountains. He's also drinking the the blood of young virgins. I think, <laughs> but it helps. But no, but I uh, I think for athletes, uh, there's like a, a like a weird. Um, like, uh, you know, when you, and I'm sure you've seen this with, with yourself or other high athletes where all of a sudden, like you make the decision that this isn't going to be who you want to be. Like, I remember, you know, coming in and I got hurt uh, my rookie year and I like, was like, this isn't the stamp I want. And you, you make this like mental change where all of a sudden it's like, uh, I'm going to go out and I'm fucking do this job to the best of my ability. And I'm going to do it better than anybody else. And merely cause I want to put a stamp on this thing that I'm proud of. And so I, I see some athletes that like, and I, I can always watch the games and you can see the people that are out there trying to make their mark and they want people to remember them or for the people that are just happy there to get the shorts. And I, uh, I love that. And, and like, you know, and like, you almost have to like go out and like you say, like, uh, you know, when you talk to these people, like let's say like a Cole or, or Brooke or them and being like, you know, how do you want to be remembered? 
You know, so, do, you, do you do you want to be remembered for short shorts, or do you want to be remembered for the person or the girl that like fuck? I don't want this girl to show up because she's gonna fucking run me into the ground. And yeah, I think I love, like so I do. Um, we do a lot of work about um, self analysis, self reflection. Who am I as a person? And what I'm trying to get all of my athletes to is what you just said, which is exactly that moment where you have that moment where you say, "This is who I am. That I am the type of athlete that dot dot dot." Whatever is that dot, dot, dot is your thing that no one will work harder than that. I will die on the competition floor that I will drink the blood of young virgins, whatever it might be. (laughs) That's Tom Brady. If you know what that dot, dot, dot is and you know it, like what's to stop you? Like, you know, I'm the type of athlete that is going to leave a legacy for my kids based off of my work ethic. Whether I make the team or not, I'm going to leave no stone on. if you can get to the point where you have that identity, that's why I talk about the character as the bottom of the pyramid. If you have that realization, like you did in your rookie year, where I'm going to be the type of athlete that you got it. I mean, the rest of this stuff, then you can follow a process that you can build your ability. Then you can talk about your strategy and everything else. But until you have that moment, you're there to get the free rebound stuff. Or, it's like, that's it. Or as I'm sure too, you've seen is, uh, the people that make excuses. Like that's my personal yeah, right. favorite. And I, you know, these guys are the Kings of this. I, I, I call them on shit and all they want to do is give me excuses instead of being <laughs> like, is he talking about us? Yeah. Uh, you two guys are the King of the excuses instead of whereas you ask me and what do I talk about? I got broad shoulders. I'll carry you guys. Is this, what reality are you in? <laughs> I think I've said that before. You guys are like this. I've <laughs> never made excuses. I'm just telling you what actually is happening. <laughs> what? Uh, I've never made excuses. No, but like that, that was a big one too that I, I noticed for the young guys is um, you would bring in like a young dude or he'd be in there playing and something wouldn't go right. And he'd be the first person to be like, Oh, well this wasn't, you know, this, whereas if like something happened, be like, yo man, shit happened. We're going to fucking get him on the next one. Or like, yeah, I fucked that one up or like this. And I remember like that level of, of growth uh, is, is something I either just comes with age. Like some people naturally have it. Um, and I sometimes wonder with, uh, and I'd love to be a fly on the wall for a lot of these competitors is, uh, you know, they're so emotional and they're out there and it's this and it's this and then this, and then I'm sure there's other people that are like, fuck it, dude, you know, we'll, we'll get them on the next one. Or like, Hey, I'm gonna go out and crush this one, regardless of what's thrown at me. Even if it's like, Hey, uh, you know, they're going to set me on fire. This one be like, all right, I'll heal. Like, so I, I think like that would be an interesting deal for, uh, for you. And I'm sure you've seen it where all of a sudden they go from the, from the point of like, trying to make excuses or finger pointing or this wasn't right to it's like, I just didn't get it done. But you know what? This ain't going to happen again. Yeah. We, we kind of live and breathe by the John Wooden mantra of never complain, never whine, and never make excuses. Period. You know, if you don't do those things, you're then going to focus on things that you have control over. And it's the only things that move the needle for you any which way. You know, it's kind of like, it's a subset of people that are victims of society or people that thrive and kill life. People that are victims of society are like everything they experience is something's out to get them. The people that thrive and experience, you know, life the way it's supposed to be, if they understand that things are not going to always line up in sunshine and rainbows and raining, you know, raining unicorns. It's the way it is. There is adversity in your lives. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to go off sides at some point in your career. You're going to get dinged up. You're going to make a bad call. You're going to, there's going to be things that happen. And when it happens, Take ownership of it. Just live up to it and move on to the next play. When you make excuses, what you're doing is you're constantly deflecting it off of you. And until it's on you, you can't change. You think it's somebody else. So I want to stay in a a related field, adversity, but injuries specifically. 
So John often talks about his his rookie year injury and it was an opportunity to focus on strategy for his sport, right? So um, we don't have to talk about any specific athletes for you, but talk about your approach for training injuries, right? So it's very important that these athletes peak at the appropriate times. And if they miss the open, then that's their year. So uh, talk to us about, I guess, your approach for preventing injuries, or if they do come up, how do you handle, I guess, rehab to get back to their sport? Yeah, so um, we do everything we can to mitigate injuries. So there's body work being done that we have recovery protocols. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to track the volume and the intensity of their training sessions. And we're constantly monitoring for just even simple things as like delayed onset muscle soreness. So we're always trying to um, work for that. It's always at the forefront of our minds because I truly believe that, you know, a really fit athlete that's at 80% of their game is not going to be as good as a pretty, pretty good athlete that's at 100%. So we, it's, it's a hugely important thing for us. Having said that, if you're going to train at peak levels of any professional sport, there's going to be things that happen along the way. So when that happens, we, I, I outsource to somebody that's a lot smarter than me. I am not a physical therapist. I'm not a physiotherapist. I'm not a movement specialist. I'm not, I send them to somebody that knows how to do rehab a lot better than I do. And they give them the recovery protocols on how to get there. We also you know, do movement work beforehand to try and create, uh, you know, more symmetry and eliminate imbalances and all the rest. Um, so I try to put as much with other smart people, um, steps along the way in the process to make sure that they're not going to get injured. If they do, then we, I, I am not the person that's rehabbing them back to full health. What, um, I know you got your four athletes, but maybe you're plugged in with some other coaches. I, I don't know. You, but what are the, what are the primary injury mechanisms you observe in a lot of these high, like high performing CrossFit athletes? I think it's just the overall load. Yeah. Uh, load of volume. And so and it's just doing so much work. I mean, yeah, I, man. I, 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 John would know this better than I would, but I don't know, you know, I haven't been inside the walls of a training camp in any other sports. But what these guys are doing day to day, to me, just like baffles human capacity. I mean, they're training with upwards of their max, max intensities for six to eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, it's incredible the workload these guys are doing. So I just think that's the, that's the primary mechanism that's going to lead them down the road to something is just the overall volume and wear and tear. It's why people are going to peak and sputter out after, you know, their so, early third. So you're training your athletes probably three times a day. They're coming in, doing a morning session, lunch. Av- yeah. Evening. I would say on average, yes. Sometimes we smush them and combine them and different times of the years have different, different mm-hmm. total amounts. But yeah. So it, is there an idea of like how many hours a week do you look at it? Like, Hey, uh, you know, we're going to do X amount at this, you know, and you kind of look through and you can kind of base it off of a week or whatnot. But I, I sometimes think like, um, you probably have to, do that volume of work in preparation of what's coming down the pike. So you have to yeah. be able to be able to do multiple workouts at any point. You have to be able to, you know, just cause I mean, that's how it's worked. I mean, how many times have we seen something where it's like, Hey, you know, like, uh, what was the, uh, uh, what was the running man movie where, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you remember? On uh, that t- I t- believe t- it was running. called running uh, yeah, man, but it was the running man. You remember? And he was like, he goes through and he's like, and then for your next challenge, that's what yeah. I feel like Dave Castro is. He's like, Oh, we just got done, you know, doing a thousand pull-ups. You know what we have to do? One RM pull-ups. 
And then you're like, oh. So, I mean, you almost have to train for that yeah. and that, you know. And if they don't do that low, mm -hmm. then they're not effectively stressing themselves in preparation. Uh, do you think that, um, and, and I, I have no idea on this one, but do you think that uh, uh, that people come into the games, uh, you know, in, with a situation that they're trying to manage and all of a sudden the game's exploited? Or you think that, that the training that people don't necessarily know how to, like, cycle volume and intensity and periodize to get themselves in the best position? Or you think people are just, like, straight up pre-Fontaine suicide pace to get there? <laughs> um, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know what we try to do and we try to get our athletes to peak at a certain date. We try to take necessary protocols to make sure that we're doing that and managing all the stuff you said in terms of hours and intensity and loading throughout the year, particularly leading up to, you know, the six weeks before the games, we spend a lot of time trying to dial that in. But so then what's the feedback to know that you're doing enough or not enough? Is it performance? Is it, is there a matrix? Is it uh, workouts? Is it strength? Is it like, what does it look like? Or you just don't want to give away your secrets? I don't know the answer. If huh. I knew the answer, I would. So is it aura? Is you walk in, you're like, God damn, your aura is really purple today. You yeah, look great, Captain. Right. Let's fucking go. I mean, because so I, I, like, I also yeah, know who, um, you, who knows? you had something on leanness. And you were like, oh, we know, which I thought was a funny word. I'd never heard anybody talk about leanness. But the uh, <laughs> the idea is uh, like, you know, that like once they reach a certain body fat, that's like a body fat that would be competitive for that athlete. So I, I think like, is there, you know, are you looking at biomarkers or how does it all fit? Yep. Um, so yeah, so really good question. Um, because our sport is so unique, it's not like, you know, in Lance Armstrong, he knew that if he did, he did an LT test and if he could put out the number was 6.2 and it was his wattage relative to his body weight. If he could put out a 6.2, he could win the tour de France. He just knew it because nobody else could match it. So all he had to do is train for that certain wattage to body weight. He knew he could win. Our sport is not that. It's not one-dimensional. So we could get an athlete to be able to back squat 500 pounds and to be able to do 30 unbroken muscle-ups, and that might mean shit when it cross the games pop-up because that's not what's tested. Because so you can't we, ride a bike. Yeah, yeah so yeah. We, we really don't know what, it, what the specific looks like. I have a general idea of what I want these things, what I want them to look like in generality. I know there's different leanness numbers to different everybody. Um, you know, so Katrin operates at a, uh, a little bit leaner than some of the other athletes and that's where she'll be better. It's always a constant dialing though. I, this sport is so young and I'm so new at it. I don't have this stuff figured out. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, it's like, really, it's like, but the I'm old, trying to, the old Dr. Tom, you know, everything works, but nothing works forever, you know, and it's, that, it, that's absolutely. why the dialing has to keep going on. Cause there are little different levers to pull at different times at some, for whatever reason, trigger a better training response or better recovery. It, right? well, and we'll but, use all those things though. John mentioned, you know, is it biomarkers is yeah, we do blood tests and we do HRV analysis and we monitor their sleep and we take, re, okay. you know, all resting right, well, heart rate, yeah, we're doing all that stuff. For. So it's it, like it doesn't really correlate is, yeah. is yeah i mean uh, whatever the uh I, I would always be interested to see uh the blood work like just like you know basic like uh cortisol you know uh, yeah, a1c we, and some of that stuff for some of these high level athletes because i would know looking that around because i have a whole report on it that yeah, like doing that much oxidative work i think and that much stress but i mean who knows like uh their blood know, work is actually ridiculous it's incredible in, in a good way in a good way. Wow. Yeah. It's fun. Like they are borderline superhumans. 
It's for real. Like their blood work, their cortisol is low, their testosterone is high, and that's one of the number one indicators. You know, with the um, T See, to so, C ratio. That's, that's usually so counterproductive, at least from the blood work I used to look at with uh, a lot of the CrossFit guys that were, you know, had put themselves in such adrenal fatigue mm -hmm. that they were fucking killing their test levels. And like, I remember working with a pretty high level guy, I won't name drop him because it'll be fucking embarrassing for him, that um, basically hadn't had a fucking erection in months. And yeah, uh, his, his sperm count was like, you know, I mean, he wasn't getting anything pregnant ever. And I remember him being like, and I, I was like, dude, look at your cortisol. Look at this. You can't have cortisol and testosterone in the same plane. And I kind of just going through some basic physiology. And, uh, you know, when he stopped crossfitting and just starting to lift some weights in terms of recovery deal, all of a sudden his blood work picked up. So I started wondering if that CrossFit naturally selects for the individual, right. you know, like the, you know, the people that can handle that much volume and intensity in that load that actually have a positive return on their blood work, it's kind of naturally selecting them like biomarkers are improving. There's other people that fucking implode and next thing you know, yeah. they're having you know massive problems. I think every sport self-selects, right? Like you're gonna have a much more likelihood of success in the NFL if you're six foot seven and 320 pounds. Mm -hmm. like, you're yeah. gonna do a lot better than, you know, playing offensive tackle than I am. Like it naturally selects. Yeah. So it's the same type of thing. Like there's certain athletes that can handle higher volumes and respond to that type of training positively. And other people are going to get washed out. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. that's why it might've been one of the reasons that I'm better coached than I was an athlete. <laughs> I got washed out. Yeah. I couldn't handle the volume. Well, the, you I, know, uh, it, was, it, it wrecked me when I tried to go that volume. And yeah. I came from an Ironman background. Well, football naturally selects for what we call big monkeys, which means that you have to be able to do so much load to be even get a chance to get there that if you can't handle volume and intensity and all that, you're never even going to get a chance to show up to the dance. Whereas I think a lot of these guys, and I sometimes wonder if they naturally pre-select out based off of training load, like the games, uh, like how many times have you heard, like, and I think it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Kara Webb or whatever, was like, actually the, uh, the training here at the games was less than what I was doing in my own training. So this was actually kind of enjoyable. And I remember like thinking Mother to myself, of God. Like, uh, like one, you got to be a little crazy. Uh, too, which I, I totally get for that like level of like dedication. Uh, but you know, also it's almost naturally selecting for these. Like if she, you know, if like Katrin couldn't handle the vault, the training load, she would never even get to a point where she could even compete at a high level. So yep. it's kind of naturally selecting for that. Whereas you almost wonder if there was a way to do some biomarker testing to figure out whether or not you could handle load or intensity and then basically train them to a point, maybe a reduced load and allow them to go out on the competition floor and be like, here's the deal, Prufonte and go suicide pace. Yeah, and you wonder if it's like, it's that age old debate, is it like nature versus nurture? Are people born with this capability to handle volume or is it their upbringing of, she was a high level gymnast and then she I, did high level The second one, the second one, 100%. Okay, right. the, uh, so, the, uh, the metabolic pathways that you develop at a young age uh, will far and exceed your expectations uh, later in life that uh, that's why whenever um, when I owned a gym, I used to get these people come in and be like, oh, I want to win the CrossFit Games. I'm like, great. What you do before this? Nothing. I'm 30 years old. I just, I, I've never done anything physical, but I'm going to win the games. And I remember being like, okay, let's say you watched football on Sunday and you showed up and you knocked on Robert Kraft's door and said you wanted to try out. Do you think you'd make the, you know, uh, get a tryout for the football? You think you'd be able to do it? No. Well, then why would you think this? Like, I, I think the girls and especially the ones, and this is also another thought, is because I had a guy hit me on this and he's like, well, why is it that all the high-level CrossFit girls are, are gymnasts, but none of the guys are actual gymnasts? And I was like, one reason, look at the, look at the selection of movements for female gymnastics versus male gymnastics. The guy was like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, the girls are all ground-based. The boys are all upper body-based. So you think the girls like tumbling, 
uh, balance beam. Uh, you know, the only upper body stuff they have is the parallel bars, whereas the guys are what? They're on the pommel horse. They're on the, uh, the rings, right. um, you know, the vault. I mean, everything. So the girls are all ground-based, so they develop a level of capacity that really lends claim for CrossFit, whereas the boys, it's not really as much upper body-based as much as it is ground-based. So I think that's why you see female athletes do very well in the CrossFit, but how come we haven't seen like the high-level high male uh, gymnasts go in and dominate the CrossFit? That's a cool observation. Yeah, I mean, but then when you look at the guys who do pretty well and the other athletes, it's usually people that have developed uh, – a base level of like metabolic capacity at a young age, like swimming. That's why, mm -hmm. like, uh, dude, we talked about this with Dave Spitz. Look at China and look at Colleen Fauch and these girls that were high level swimmers. Those fucking girls are carry a level of muscle mass now, which I think comes from that idea of like sustained high load that only you can get in water. So, I mean, there's like some interesting thoughts on like, uh, is CrossFit naturally selecting for what you did as a young age? I 100% believe that what you do from the age of three up until, you know, seven, eight, nine, you know, 10 years old is going to set a foundation for you to be successful in something like this. So yeah, this is, uh, this is making me think a little bit. So earlier we talked about Don't the, do that, Tex. the team. You know what happens when you start thinking. And I hope you got about 30 more minutes, Ben. I'm just kidding. But not really. So think, talking about the teens, talking about the teens, and you said, Ben, this is a new sport and natural selection. And one of the foreseeable issues that I see with the teenage age group is the common injuries that we see with baseball and volleyball for young athletes. So we have overuse and overload injuries because it's the same movement pattern, repetitive, 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 repetitive. So we're talking squats. Every freaking movement in the sport of fitness, if we look at the teenage games, is a freaking squat, maybe a lunge in the open. So it's all the same movement patterns. Mm -hmm. It's all the same just whip of the elbows. So I'm worried to see overuse and overload injuries in teenagers taking out of the out of teen sports because they their natural selection, their body type. It's fun. It's a good time. But they go all in. I don't know, new sport. I'm just worried here. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what comes down into just where I think they're within our domain. And Ben, what you were talking about, like, you know, have some kids get into our gymnastic style swimming early on and uh, some track and field and these more what we would consider athletic sports. Because when we talk about the complexity of patterning in the movements required of the games, you need to be able to overload and vary and load really a few fundamental patterns, vertical pull, vertical push, and then squatting. And then there's exceptions to that. But if we heat map the volume and the tonnage on certain movement patterns, it's primarily those. So the games aren't really that fucking complex compared to the movement patterns required of basketball, of soccer, of traditional field sports. Those are combinatory movement patterns that are like, you know, a symphony of these movements of squat, step, lunge, push, pull, round space in the open loop and have a higher neural demand, right? So it increases your general skill base, maybe not your fitness base, but skill base. Well, so you got to be it, in general physical shape to mm -hmm. play. So that's why. Well, I think if they wanted to have a more complete uh, and actually if they were to put the stamp and that, you know, I know CrossFit says we're searching for the fittest on the planet, open it to the world and let them suggest. I think what they have to do is they have to reach out to maybe a committee of other people 
aside from Dave's caster, or maybe some people that aren't without uh, outside the CrossFit, like somebody in a few different places, like let's say you brought together three people that all had different deals that had, that sat down and said, Hey, you know what? Let's design physical testing that tests for this deal. Mm-hmm. And I, I think like, cause I mean, here's, I, and I firmly believe that, uh, I could design a CrossFit games that would, uh, that you could pre-select for who you wanted to win. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Like, do you think you could design something? You could look and say, who do I want to win this now? I mean, I don't think they do this, but like, let's say, for example, uh, I put a 600-pound deadlift at the beginning of the run and said, hey, it's a 5K, but you can't start the 5K until you pull that 600-pound deadlift. And whoever does that is going to win the games. And then everybody steps up and just one dude I'm can out. deadlift 600 pounds and he walks the rest of it. And he's now dedicated as the, or, you know, set up as the fittest on the planet. So, I mean, like you could create certain things based off of uh, like the fact that uh, they fucking threw dumbbells in and was like crushing people's world to the point where CrossFit actually came out with a seminar on how to train but and that, use dumbbells. John, that's called the long con. <laughs> <laughs> like, like to me though, if, if to really make it ethical in such a way to really put the stamp on it, I think you have to reach out and say, all right, well, you know what? Like here's closed loop movements. Here's open loop. Let's train for what we, you know, what we think could be the best. So that's my thought. But of course, nobody's asking me. I'm well, just, let's let's bring it back to Texas original yeah, point. But I'm just and, looking at weightlifting or a structured program or a linear progression for a teenager that will provide so much more in their life than going to the games one year as a teenager. Mm -hmm. So all the first wave, second wave, third wave adaptations, their third wave would be stepping up and then using those. Okay. Well, inner intra muscular coordination. Uh, Yeah. If you look at who usually some of the best football players, and I'll use that because we failed the margins of our experience and it's my deal. But if you look at some of the best guys I've ever played with, not a single one of them grew up playing football. I always think of like Tony and I laughing where, uh, you know, I fought and, and boxed and did uh, combat stuff when I was younger. And that was more, the boxing was more beneficial for me playing football than playing football. Tony was like, I remember asking him and he's like, dude, he goes, honestly, playing tight end is, uh, is like playing against basketball against a bunch of dudes that don't know play basketball, short guys. And he's like, when I go out and catch a pass, he's like, it's just like me going for a layup or me, you know, catching something low down on the post. Uh, you can look at uh, Antonio Gates, never even played college football, walked on after he got cut from basketball. Um, you know, Willie Rofe and all these different guys I played with uh, were all really good athletes in other places that when uh, that were more beneficial for them to go play football. And so I, I think for something like CrossFit, the people that can develop a skill capacity in, an, in another place, like would Katrin be as good at CrossFit if she didn't do X amount of years of gymnastics as a young kid? Let's say she just CrossFitted. No, I think she'd be an incomplete athlete. But she did something that allowed her to move in space, body awareness, tumble. I mean, you go through all the million different ones. And now all of a sudden she puts herself in a focused training that actually has a goal with a little bit of, uh, you know, progression into it. And next thing you know, they're able to do pretty well. Matt Frazier, same thing, right? What happened? He was at the OTC as an Olympic lifter, hurts his shoulder. Did, you know, let, let me go pick up this CrossFit thing. And now the guy fucking walked all over those people to the point where I kind of thought Rich Froning might try to make a comeback. But, but I, I went to a seminar. I'm not kidding when I say this. There was a kid training there. We traveled Friday morning, and I'm asking, like, isn't school in session? And it turned out the kid opted for homeschool so he could spend more time doing CrossFit to get better with his long-term goal of winning the games. That crushes me because I had so much fun, I don't know, in freaking playing sports, doing high and school things. you weren't things. good at those in, when you were exactly. six, seven years old. That was the last time you played anything competitive, right? Yeah, I wasn't good back then. Back then, John. 
Yeah, at the same time, this exists in sports all over the world where there isn't, you know, even as much of a future as there is in CrossFit. Like, if you want to be an Olympic-level pairs figure skater, a lot of those guys opt to be homeschooled and spend nine hours at the rink every single day. You know, it's like, it's a little bit to each their own. You know, it's, is CrossFit detrimental to this? Much less so than the much more repetitive sports like we already mentioned, like swimming or other things, because it has at least more varied movement patterns than those. You know, it's, I think that. But I would argue uh, it doesn't really. I don't think it does. I think it's push, pull, vertical, and squat. And uh, 95%. Uh, it, it's going to be multi-plane. And I'm not saying that uh, it's, it, I guess, depends What's on your. baseball? Your, your stroke and what you play, right? Yeah, and we don't count that. It's organized. <laughs> yeah, it's fucking, yeah, it's poor. Uh, but it's it's unilateral rotary movement and some and torso trunk rotation and multi-plane, right? And uh, 100%, the volume that you need to be a great swimmer is detrimental to 90% of the population. But, but there's uh, a reason why that most swimmers, when you take them out of the water... It's fucking awful. Oh, yeah. Uh, Raphael, uh, I don't know if you remember Raf from our CrossFit football seminar uh, that we taught way back at them. Yeah, he, he went and worked with all these, uh, you know, the Olympic swimmers, Olympic swim team. And he said most of these people out of the water, he was nervous just them walking to the car that they might actually hurt themselves. <laughs> that's a lot of, I mean, that's a lot of sports in general. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Because they get so focused on that third wave adaptation of their specialty. And it's phenomenal because their world, you know, the guys that can run marathons, they're the guys that said, I think they, the marathon record was just set. It was at two hours and 20 seconds. He's running like 420 miles for 26 miles. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Take that guy off the road, put him <laughs> in any other athletic endeavor. And it'd be embarrassing. Well, it's because sure. he's, he's like a, a, a head with big lungs and He's the best in feet. the world at what he's doing. So I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to be exceptional at something that you but, find passionate so so think about this though i mean there isn't any uh i don't know a single football player or baseball player or whatnot that is homeschooling so they can work on their sport a little bit more Mm, but there is like there is img academy who you would go to get extra tennis lacrosse football Mm -hmm. all this crap how many kids are like doing their school sports then their town sports then aau Mm -hmm. i mean i'm not saying this is the right thing but to knock on CrossFit for being a part of... No, no, I mean, we're not knocking on it, but I, I think the problem becomes uh, until they start offering scholarships in CrossFit or there's some way for people to make money outside of just the top echelons, I think it's, uh, you know, like if, if that kid said to me, hey, I, I'm homeschooling because I want to work on CrossFit because I'm going to get this full ride to go to Stanford for CrossFit, I'd be like, fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that, you know, and I, I don't know what the money looks like. You would know better than, uh, you know, being closer to it. But I would imagine that if you're outside the top 10 games people, you probably don't make a living that's sufficient to be able to survive mm-hmm. on so, I'd say it's accurate, but at the same time, it's the same, like, I'm going to go be an Olympic bobsledder or Olympic sure. uh, skater. Like, there's no scholarships for those, and there's no money sure. in either. Those guys come back and end up being UPS drivers. Sure, mm-hmm. and they're doing it 100% for the glory of it. And, and I, they and love it, and they're passionate about it, and they're living in the moment, and they're trying to be world-class at something. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with trying to be the best that you something you want to, that you're passionate about. I just think uh, if you don't develop, I think if you – here's my attitude on it. Like that kid actually is doing more detriment to his CrossFit 
by dedicating himself to CrossFit than going out and playing everything. Yeah, that's, and that, that's we would have that. Argument. I would agree with you. That's because, we have that talk with baseball the, dads yeah, and the, volleyball yeah. moms. We have the, the same talk with those those repetitive movement yeah. pattern sports. Like, well, Greg Glassman, who everybody forgets that he said this right, because right. it was at the end. He should have put it the first. Was <laughs> learn to play new and sports, practice and learn new sports. Yeah, that yeah. was like uh, that was like, hey, this is all training, but at the end of the day, you have to go out and you have to learn and practice new skills. And like the problem becomes like the the desire for blood and like you know people will die for points and all that and like you know to have a spectator sport for the games has effectively I think it kind of flies in the face of mm -hmm. what the original methodology and the initial initial uh, mission statement is. And so what I appreciate is seeing them throw things at people that are outside their skill, like cyclocross or um, um, yeah, cyclocross. Like the, yeah, cyclocross. Or asking them to do some certain things that mm -hmm. you know, uh, like I kind of laugh seeing that people don't know how to ride a bicycle over obstacles. Oh my and gosh! I'm like, yeah. I'm like this, or a, a softball throw, or a simple change of direction, or some things that. And I actually think uh, taking the games to Madison was a great deal because it allowed them to do way more shit. Uh, being in LA and all that just really, you know, mm -hmm. fucking cuts you down. And I guess let me also. I don't want to speak for all. We well, I'll speak for all of us because we're fucking together twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Like. The CrossFit isn't a no, bad thing. The CrossFit isn't a bad thing. Like it's like we talked about earlier on. Like it has done more to shift the health and wellness yeah. of more people. It it allows access to better training facilities for Dude, people. It's put more it's a great training technology. My my an analog to what our concern would be is a discussion we had earlier, Ben, where it's like, hey, if you're gonna chase a fucking six hundred and eighty pound deadlift at the detriment of all these other attributes within the fitness domain, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. And I think that this is a potential analog for youth development, right? By putting them on this fixed redundant, some maximal movement pattern training with the goal to gradiate and eventually get to this amazing capacity within this finite domain, in relatively speaking, right? And I know there's even more finite domains, I think is ultimately a disservice to the long-term benefit of this thing. Right. And it may not be for the it may be for glory. It may be for this. And there are other training and competitive endeavors that do the same thing. I just think it can be done by not doing it. You know what I mean? If you want to be a if you want to be an eventual force to be reckoned with in the sport of fitness, the proverbial, you know, 20, 30 CrossFit Games athlete who's running the sub three minute mile and deadlifting fucking 600 pounds like I think that starts with some of the stuff we we all have already talked about in terms of early life cycle development for youth sports and athleticism, right? Like this is our gymnastics and things like that. And then entering into a weightlifting type of domain at appropriate time and track and field, maybe some uh, decathlete type stuff where you're getting rotation, throwing pure you're power. You're forgetting one thing. Um, to be good at just about anything uh, like this, you have to be able to suffer. Mm-hmm. So you either have to be able to like want to like make others. So suffer. wouldn't that be that long range track athlete? Yeah, I mean, like I had like uh, no, nobody suffers not necessarily. Nobody suffers more than an eight hundred meter runner, and mm -hmm. I know because I dated an eight hundred meter runner. Well, that was because you dated her, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was pretty well. <laughs> yeah. That's not here nor there. Uh, but like that ability to suffer, like you said, like uh, earlier you were talking about wrestling, like you know, like yeah. the ability to be tough, like wrestlers, mm -hmm. like dude, the guys that uh, wrestled in my high school. Fucking 120 degrees with space heaters wearing uh, uh, yeah. uh, trash bags, jumping rope to like fucking, um, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Loud and Swain and um, fuck, John Waite, a change, uh, <laughs> fuck, Lunatic Fringe, um, a vision quest. 
I mean, shit like that, like that level of suffering they have to do, uh, mm-hmm. the gymnastics girls, the amount of time and effort and work that they put through. Now, uh, I think you have to develop some form of like, you have to want to suffer or make other people suffer to be mm-hmm. successful at this stuff. And I think for a lot of these sports, like, you know, the rubber meets the road, you got to be able to, you, you, you got to, like, you just don't magically come up with that ability to fucking suffer. That's something you got to develop. I'm also thinking with this, the, the illusion of preparation. And that's one of the biggest things that we have to take into consideration as a coach, right? You build the program, you put them in this position. So if this individual is focusing on solo sport, swimming, baseball, volleyball, CrossFit, whatever, they give everything in their most formulative anabolic years committing to this one sport, and then an injury takes them out, a life circumstance. They do not have the social abilities to manage that situation, whether it's, you know, emotionally because it's taken away or be functional in, in life. So you're saying if you homeschool, you're a weirdo? Uh, 100%. I don't know. Because no. I don't trust schools. Uh, I but don't either. <laughs> well, I mean, we have seen that there is a, um, what's pretty interesting, if you are sending your child, and you know this, you got four kids, and I'm telling you guys as future parents, if you send your children to school with the idea that that's the only education they need, both physical, emotional, and mental, you are 100% behind the eight ball. There are people that don't read to their kids. There's people that they go, well, they'll go to school, they'll learn PE, they'll learn sports. But that is the but, parents' perspective but, of the illusion of preparation. But but that's because they are expecting somebody else. Like I've told you guys this. I don't expect anybody to educate or raise my children other than me. Going to school is a way for them to learn to navigate social structures. They go in and this. Uh, my daughters already know how to read. They already do these things. They're not even in kindergarten yet. But it's because that's how I've armed them, and this stuff is important to me. We have a gym, pretty nice gym at the you know where we live here in Texas, and they come up and they play. They go to gymnastics and swimming. If I don't, if I just go, uh, let kids be kids, and they should go out and run and eat mud and pick <laughs> bugs and do stupid shit like that because they do it every day. But like, okay, good, right? You know this, like, uh, like you have to be able to do this, and like as a parent, and this always drives me crazy is that uh, um, I think. You have to educate your child in both physical and like these other things, but you also have to put them in situations when they go to school where they have to fucking survive without mommy and daddy there. And that's why I think the homeschools deal. And I knew kids that were homeschooled. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that you have to learn to navigate social situations minus your parents. So no more coddling. Mm, that's interesting. So. Well, I think you're way off, and I think oh, fuck you. I think the Earth ben, is flat, ben, and I think oh, that. Uh, <laughs> did, did you know he's a flat earther? He thinks oh, Earth is flat. This is. Hang on. Well, this First is, off, <laughs> what if Ben and I both think the Earth is flat? You've insulted this is, our guests. This, this is our uh, common joke where we uh, accuse each other of being flat earthers, which is our favorite. So, hang on, hang on, hang on. Do you, do you, you do don't you know, know what about, flat, earth, flat Earth is? I, I got an idea. You think the Earth is flat? Yes. <laughs> so there's there's whoa, people. Whoa, whoa. Think <laughs> these so, people know. So there's people on the internet that believe oh wholeheartedly God. that the Earth is flat, and they have all these theories, and it's a whole fucking deal. If you if you 
Look for the hashtag Flat Earth on Instagram. There's entire page. You'll find at John Wellborn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll find. Yeah, it's uh, but it's it, it's the type of thing where I think I thought people were just fucking around and trolling mm-hmm. each other, and then uh, we delve mm-hmm. into it and we're like, holy shit, these people really think the Earth is flat. Yeah, and they have some like pop culture, uh, I guess, and uh, what would you call them, ambassadors and evangelists behind this idea. But I, you know, John, we there's something that uh, I think you've said and a lot of our friends have said, like the lowest form of life form is the YouTube commenter. Yes. I think we found lower life form. It is the flat, flat earth YouTube commenter. <laughs> <laughs> like, when they're going on just like beautiful dude, cause I'm telling you, Ben, like you'll just look like NASA launches new video of the earth from this telescope. And these guys are on that fucking YouTube video. Like NASA, I can't believe you dumb motherfuckers believe the earth is round. And this like, is all in a sound studio in, oh, in, in, in LA and we never did this. And like they, you know, and then they give you uh, all these things and you're like, dude, so I, I remember asking Andy, I'm like, hey, Andy, when you set the world record, when you jumped out of that plane at 40,000 and flew for 18 miles, did you see the curvature of the earth? He's like, yeah, the earth is round. Why? People don't believe that? <laughs> it's like a big fucking blue marble. And I'm like, no, these people believe it. And their whole thing is, uh, how could, oh, dude, it. Let's not go there. Yeah, but what, fucking, we, what we have done crazy. is something I've been trying to do for maybe the past eight weeks, which is talk about flat earth on the fucking <laughs> podcast. And Ben, you were the guy that brought it out. It's your wow. fault. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so next time you want to confuse your athletes, be like, hey, we're going to do this workout. But uh, once you guys get mm-hmm. done, we're going to talk about why the earth is flat. Right. And well, here's all the workout flat earth. Mm-hmm. And yes. here's here's ultimately why I have a new theory. Here's why within the sport of fitness and weightlifting, the numbers will continue to get heavier and heavier is because the earth is technically slowing down and ultimately gravity isn't working. Earth is a, a disc that is soaring through the earth or through the universe. That's my new theory. It's because the earth is flat. You guys on board? No. Okay. Now, Ben, hey man, uh, this is a blast. It was like two fucking hours and it kind of flew by. I hope you had a good time. Yeah, and, that's great. Uh, uh, appreciate you yeah. coming on here and, and chatting with us, man. I, um, I don't know. I hope, I hope people enjoyed it. I had a fucking good time. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, we're, we, we're, hopefully we will reconnect or we'll connect in the future. And uh, yeah, dude, because there's a whole there's a whole discussion, Ben, about warming up. And like we have this philosophy on warm up. Maybe we connect offline or maybe it's another show yeah. or something. We'd love to come out and just kind of and talk about that because it has a lot to do with identifying injury mechanisms and treating them, actually. So Oh, preventing. Yeah. yeah. So and also cleaning up bad movement patterns, because like we said, if people get stuck in these repetitive patterns, all of a sudden they get. You know, mm-hmm. sticky. Yeah. So. But anyways, thank you. Any Oh, how about this? Where do you want people to go to check out the book, check out the site, check out whatever you're doing? Uh, easiest place is benbergeron.com. Okay. Yeah, and then people there, you're going to find some programming. You're going to find some mindset work. You're going to go check out this book. Uh, it's going to put you in the right place. And Ben, again, thanks a lot, man, for coming on uh, the show. And uh, I guess until next time. Sounds good. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate thanks, it. Right. Thank you. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Ben Bergeron and links to his programming and publications by going to benbergeron.com. There you'll also find a link to purchase his book, Chasing Excellence, which was referenced throughout this podcast by Tex. And ahoy hoy, have you heard the news? The Power Athlete Symposium is releasing a second wave of tickets for a limited time. These tickets grant you access to all of our sick speakers, including Rafa Rees, Derek Woodski, Bert Soren, Andy Stumpf, and many, many more. You can purchase yours by heading to powerathlete.com backslash symposium 
And remember that all proceeds go to Wade's Army, our charity supporting the families affected by a rare form of pediatric cancer called neuroblastoma. And listen, folks, if you can't get down for the symposium this year, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. However, you can still donate to the cause by going to wadesarmy.org. If you're familiar with the annual Wade's Day campaign, we are doing things just a little bit different this year. There's no need to get a team involved. We'll take your cold, hard cash straight from you as an individual. All you need to do is donate as much or as little as you want and then decide whether or not you'd like to rock the new Wade's Army uniform. It will be sent to you prior to November 12th for the Wade's Day workout. Whew, I think that wraps it up for this week. Until next time, bye!